Yo, what's up, everybody? You're listening to Between the Gutters, the podcast where we talk about the stories within the panel. I'm your co-host, Drew Tan, and I'm with Albert Lamb. Today, we're joined by our buddy Shanus, Alexander Shanus, as we continue directly from our previous episode with our Marvel Comics Top 25 addendum. So in this episode, we'll discuss a bunch of the comics that we really like, but weren't in serious consideration for our list. And we'll also talk about the comics that were conspicuously absent. So sit back and enjoy the ride. You guys want to All dive right. into some of the honorable mentions that, that we had, like just some of the runs that we really liked? Sure. So uh, we're not going to like really read. Uh, we're not going to go too deep into these. We're just going to fire them off. But it's a, it's a, it's a, It's a hefty list, I must say. I'll. How about we do this? We'll just go with the uh, the version of it. So I'll go through the A's, and you can pick up the B's, and I'll do C <laughs> and D or whatever. Or I'll, I'll just do it. Okay. <clears throat> so we have Amazing Spider-Man number two forty-eight, which is a one-shot story called "Kid Who Collects Spider-Man" by Roger Roger Stern and friends. Ron Friends. Ron Friends. Yeah. Uh, we have Astonishing X-Men by Warren Ellis. And uh, I forget who the artist one that was. Yeah. Different artists on each of the arcs. Like Simone Bianchi drew one arc. Uh, Carrie yeah. drew one. And Phil Jimenez drew another one. Yeah. Might have been Phil Jimenez's finest work. <laughs> Probably. Either that or yeah. Planet X. <laughs> We have Astonishing X-Men by Joss Whedon and John uh, Cassidy. I was going to say John Candy. <laughs> John Candy. <laughs> um, <clears throat> we have Avengers by Kurt Busiek, and it was a decently long, long run, so he had very, uh, a few different artists on them. I believe George Perez is one of them. Yep, your favorite. Um, yeah, he's my favorite George Perez. <laughs> <laughs> Are we going alphabetically by by series title or by by creative team? Creative team. Uh, I, well, I was going alphabetically by the title. What about Astonishing X Men Ghost Boxes? By Warren. That's Ellis? part of. Yeah, that was Warren. Ellis yeah, that was run. part of the Astonishing X Men run. Okay, cause I, okay, I, 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 maybe I misheard you because I thought you mentioned um, Joss Whedon only. He no, no, no. So there's the Astonishing. Ellis. Yeah. So before that, there was the Warren Ellis. Those are uh, two distinct uh, runs. Yeah. We also have Avengers Endless Wartime by Warren Ellis and Mike McCone. This was uh, OGN. So it was, yeah, so it was an original graphic novel, uh, just a compact story in, uh, in and of itself. Yeah, I think we talked about that one when we did our uh, Avengers episode. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, we have Black Bolt by Saladin Ahmed. How you how you gonna mispronounce his name like that, dude? <laughs> it's a joke that we have. It's actually Saladin Ahmed and uh, Christian Ward. Yeah. Um, that, that's a that's a good book. I think we mentioned it last week in our Vision episode. But if you if 
if you want like something that's more recent, like within the past few years, that's a, a really good book to pick up. Yeah. And just FYI for the listeners, it's, it was an inside joke because we were listening to this guy who was just, he's just a hateful, disgusting human being, but he was talking about uh, Salad and Ahmed and, you know, his body of work. And he kept referring to him as Ahmed. Yeah. And I was just like, dude, can you read? Where's this coming from? <laughs> the guy's just an idiot. Yeah. He doesn't know how to read. Doesn't so, he just sound a bit racist? The guy is racist. Okay. He, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he is crap taste in comics too. Yeah. And like his justifications for the comics that he likes, it just they just clarify how much of an idiot he is. Exactly. <laughs> we also have Black Panther by Tanahasi Coates and uh, various artists. Uh, yeah, I want to say. Man, he it's it's a pretty long run. It's it's still, still ongoing it. currently. Yeah, he's still yeah, writing it. A, yeah. Uh I know Jerome Peño was one of the recent artists. Wait, he uh, did? Was oh, it thinking of Daniel Acuña? Daniel Acuña, sorry. I yeah. get those guys mixed up. Um I don't remember who who drew the earlier runs. The earlier stuff was uh Brian Stelfries and Chris Sprouse. Right, right. Good-looking stuff. Yeah. Uh, aside from that, we have Black Panther by uh, Christopher Priest. Yeah, and, that was uh, a great run. Yeah. What's the guy's name who drew it? Uh, they had a bunch of artists on that too, but the, the main one was Sal Valudo. The, the guy who drew the first arc was Mark Texera, though. Yeah, Probably that's who I was thinking, thinking of. of. Yeah. yeah, he was the one that I was thinking of. Uh, another one that uh, we've got on our list is Cable by Joe Casey and Ladron. Yeah, that's that's the best one. Cable comic you'll ever find. Yep. Period. Far better than Rob Liefeld's Cable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Joe Casey gave the character a lot of depth and emotion. And Ladron's art, man, he was channeling full Kirby in this comic, which is a crazy thing to imagine because... When you think of Cable, I think the natural thing to picture is Rob Liefeld, not <laughs> Jack Kirby, but Ladron, man. He, he definitely yeah. gets a Kirby feel. Yeah. Like, if you can think of Rob Liefeld's art, and especially, like, technology, because, you know, technology uh, in Joe Casey's uh, – uh, not in Joe Casey, in uh, Jack Kirby's – comics is a big part of his like showcase is it's a big part of what he showcases in in terms of his art yeah it's like his if you part can, of his signature style exactly right so when you think of like rob liefeld it's it's like typical 80s machine guns it's like barrels on top of barrels on top of barrels it's just it's almost cartoonish and not in a fun way you yeah. know it really doesn't really feel like there's too much in terms of design. It's just like a bunch of gar uh, barrels and, you know, gun belts, stuff like that. Pouches. But pouches. Bandoliers. And then yeah, like just all the stuff that you would associate with just an 80s action star, but much worse <laughs> looking. Yeah. <laughs> 
And, you know, LeDron takes that idea and filters it through a, a Jack Kirby aesthetic. So all the guns look cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the table the looks, cool. looks cool. The table looks cool. The people look cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's a run. I, I wish they would make a fat hardcover collecting the whole thing, man. I would buy that. Yeah. You still have your issues, Shanus? Of cable? Yeah, I think I have them all. Nice. Good stuff. Uh, coming up, we have Daredevil by Ed Brubaker and Michael Lark. So we just talked about how uh, Brian Michael Bendis's Daredevil, you know, was very close to making it on our top twenty-five list. But following uh, Brian Michael Bendis's and Alex Maleev's run, uh, he was followed by Ed Brubaker and Michael Lark, and mm-hmm. you know, that's that's a very good run too. I would say it. It. Yeah, Daredevil had little... an extremely long, sustained run of quality. Yeah, it's it's a little overshadowed by the you know the Bendis and uh, Alex Maleev stuff, but it's you know they did a good job of of maintaining the consistency of quality yeah. for sure. I think the very first story arc that Brubaker and Lark did—that's one of my absolute favorite Daredevil stories ever. So this is going to be a spoiler for the end of Bendis' run. But the way Bendis ends his run is Matt Murdock is in prison. Mm. And Brubaker and Lark begin their run by continuing that story where it's basically uh, a story about Matt Murdock coming crossing paths with a variety of the other vicious criminals that he's put away into prison (laughs) and yeah. No, they're all in this confined area. So he's got the owl. Uh, I think Tombstone is in there. Kingpin is in there. And then Bullseye is in there. And at, at one yeah. point, Frank Castle's in there. So it, yeah. it's just crazy intense. Like every issue, the intensity just wraps up higher and higher. And you just don't know what's going to happen. I yeah. just think it's fascinating because uh, maybe I'm mistaken, but it, it seems very unique to have a creative team put a character in a certain precarious position yep. and then to have another creative team pick up the story threads mm-hmm. rather than having sort of a whole new story arc beginning from scratch. Yeah. Like it's yeah. extremely rare. And these are also yeah. two very different voices of creative teams too. It's very rare. You don't, you really don't see that happen. Most of the time when a creative team finishes their run, they, they kind of put the toys back in the box, you know, like they don't, they want to make it so that whoever comes after them can do a fresh start and do whatever they want. But in, in this instance, uh, Bendis, you know, he left his toys lying around on the living room floor and Brubaker just came along and picked them up and kept on playing with them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, like one of the, that particular story arc that you mentioned, that first arc, like one of the things that, and this might be a small thing, but one of the things that always captivated me about it was the title of that arc, which was The Devil in Cell Block D. Yeah. I was like, man, that's just a cool title. That's a catchy title. I really title. like that. It's super catchy. Yeah. Yeah. I really like Michael Lark's art, too. He's he's one of my favorite artists ever. He did art on Gotham Central, didn't he? Yeah, that was Michael Lark. Yep. Mm-hmm. So after the... Brubaker run on Daredevil, then wasn't it Andy Diggle who took over for just a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. That, we don't talk that was, about that one. 
Yeah. <laughs> and then, then it went to the hands of, was it uh, Mark Wade? Yeah. That run we do talk about. Yeah. No, when did Mark, when did Mark Wade's run end? I don't remember when, but I know Charles Soule took over after that, and we went back to not talking about that run. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say, because you and I had an exchange to say about something Charles Soule's doing. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Star Wars but, stuff. So before you said that, I was going to think, we're probably not going to talk about that run either. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, right mean, now, uh, Chip Zdarsky and Marco Cicchetto are doing Daredevil. And yeah, I heard, we're back I heard, to talking about it. <laughs> I heard, yeah. yeah, I heard Chip Zdarsky's been doing some really amazing stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah. he started off as, a, as an artist, but now he's, like, a huge writing force. Yeah, totally. I'm, I'm loving his Daredevil. So following Daredevil... We have Deadpool by Joe Kelly, mm-hmm. and I want to say Ed McGinnis drew uh, a substantial portion of that. Yeah. Yes. He, yeah. I don't know if it was substantial, but he drew the first few issues of it. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's. I don't. That's uh, the essential Deadpool run. Like you can read that and not read any other Deadpool, and you'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, it's, it's just the best Deadpool. Don't read Daniel Way. Yeah, don't uh, read Daniel Way's Deadpool. It's not the way to go. It is not the way yeah. to go. <laughs> Maybe you could read Gary Dugan. I don't know. I'm I'm still not too sure. I, I haven't read too much Gary Dugan, so it's harder for me to say. You could read the David Lapham and Kyle Baker run. The Max yeah. read Deadpool. That's yeah. a good run. Yeah, that is. And you can read Uncanny X-Force. Deadpool's in there. Yeah. So following that up, we have Electra Assassin by Frank Miller and Bill Sikowitz. Yeah, that was uh, one. I, I wanted to cheat and include that in uh, Daredevil when we were doing our top 25 Marvels, but I was like, maybe we shouldn't cheat. Yeah. But yeah. It's, we it's, have to maintain our integrity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we ain't cheaters here. Yeah. <laughs> in addition to that, we have uh, Fantastic Four by Mark Wade and Michael Waringo. Yeah, um, I like that run a lot. Yeah, it's a it's a cool Fantastic Four story. It's it's got some very dramatic moments. I want to say, was this the last comic where Ringo worked on before he died? No, he worked on a few others after this. Okay, okay, yeah. Like, I, I but, he did some Spider Man after this. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um. Following that up, we have Fantastic Four by Matt Fraction, uh, Mark Bagley, and Mike Allred. Yeah, that was right after uh, the Hickman run. So Fraction yeah. wrote Fantastic Four and FF. Allred drew the FF issues. Bagley drew the Fantastic Four issues. I liked it a lot too, man. I had I got the Omnibus yeah. and I read it right after I read the Hickman run. It's like... Before I read the Hickman run, I think the Wade and Wiringo run was my favorite Fantastic Four. But now I'd probably say it's uh, Hickman and then Wade and Wiringo and then probably uh, the Fraction run. That's Those are probably yeah. my, my three favorites. Nice. And the the omnibus that you got, I think you got it for 20 bucks. Yep. The $20 <laughs> omnibus. You got to love that, yep. man. That's a great that's deal. A that's, deal. That's like a we can talk about dollar book. We can talk about it longer than I can. Then, then we can listen to uh, Rob Liefeld talk about his kids. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, man. 
I would listen to Drew talk about getting a cheap omnibus for hours over you could, you could do Rob a, Liefeld a, talking you about could do a how proud he is of his detailed kids. analysis or discussion of like how you felt when you saw the shelf, you saw the price, like the like, <laughs> like expand those momentary seconds where like your brain registered what you were looking at, what you were holding, how you felt each moment, every step you took the weight until you brought it to the counter, like what you're doing in the time of your being, being like, how was just sitting in the back of your mind, like the weight of the weight of goodness that was in your hands the whole time. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no, you're just coming out on top with a great deal. Yeah. You just <laughs> into like a five season story, you know, <laughs> I'd watch that. <laughs> uh, following that up, we have, Fury, My War Gone By by Garth Ennis and uh, Goran Parlov. I forget what it is. Goran Parlov. Uh, That's a great war comic. Yeah. It's a great, it's, yeah. It's for readers, so it's not for kids. But if you want like one of Marvel's more uh, mature comics that are you know, a little bit more on the thoughtful side... That's definitely it's haunting stuff, man. Yeah, it is haunting stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, following that up, we have Ghost Rock Trail of Tears by Garth Ennis and Clayton Crane. Uh, one of the best westerns you know, Marvel has ever put out. Yeah, that's one of the best what? westerns, western West- comics. It's yeah. uh, it's not the Ghost Rider like Johnny Blaze or Danny Ketch. Mm-hmm. It actually takes place uh like in the 1860s, that era of time. And it's uh, about cow- a cowboy version of Ghost Rider, basically. Oh, didn't they, yeah, didn't they include that in like Ghost Rider the movie or? Did they? I don't it know. I didn't watch did, the movie. That movie did not. Yeah. I can't say that that was good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a Nicolas Cage movie, so I'll still watch it. <laughs> That's fair. I'll give you that. Nicolas Cage is the treasure. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just fun to watch him act. Maybe I should check those movies out then, because I've never seen the Ghost Rider movies. Wait, like, were there two I mean, of them? There were two, right? There, there were two. two yeah, I mean, they're they're bad as movies, but they're they're but they're still fun to watch in their own way. I think they're bad as Ghost Rider movies, cause oh, for sure. But they're great Nicholas Cage movies. They're okay. not they're okay. not a showcase for Ghost Rider, but they're if you're watching Nick Cage. Them as a showcase for Nick Cage, then yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know Nick Cage named himself after Luke Cage? Did he? Yeah, he's a comic book fan. I know that he's a big fan of Superman. Yeah. Uh, yeah he, he named his son Kal El. Like, uh, <laughs> did he really? Characters. Yeah. That's funny. He named dude. his son Kal El. He wanted to be Superman in that one uh, when when in they the almost 90s? made that Superman movie. Yeah, in the nineties. Superman would fight the giant spider. The giant yeah. spider robot that ended up being the yeah. bad guy in Wild Wild West. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I think That's an old married, Kevin Smith story. I think he was married to Elvis Presley's daughter, wasn't he? Or isn't he? Yeah, he was. But, you know, it came to an end. Oh, it did? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know uh, who his current wife is, but I know it's not her. Okay. Yeah. Um... Following that up, we have G.I. Joe number 21, Silent Interlude by Larry Hama and Leo, Leo Loha. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know anything about this one, so I, I'll have to defer to you if you have anything. Yeah, that, that's a famous classic issue because it was 
wordless. Uh, it was one of those comics that that uh, is just well regarded as a masterclass in artistic storytelling. Uh, I think the the background behind it is that I think they were just running late on their deadline, and and Larry Hama ended up just cranking this out, and Le Aloha uh, inked it, I believe. But it, it's it's a completely wordless story about snake eyes infiltrating a cobra fortress getting into a fight with uh storm shadow and i think i think uh he's trying to rescue i think snake eyes was trying to rescue scarlet or something she's in it too and she ends up fighting some bad guys off and it's it's just a a classic story like anytime anyone talks about 80s marvel comics you got to bring up gi joe somehow and, and that's the probably the one issue that stands out above everything else because at the time uh it was kind of unusual to see a comic be so bold as to tell the entire story without any dialogue or captions or words at all you know it's not unusual to have love (laughs) (laughs) to be in love with anyone I just felt like I had to say it because you you said it's not unusual. So. <laughs> and now we got to do the the Carlton dance, man. You guys can't see it, but Shanice is going all out doing the Carlton right now, <laughs> snapping his thumbs from side to side. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Uh, the next comic that we have is Grew by uh, Sergio Argones. That's that's something that isn't a typical Marvel comic, but it's something that I'd like to talk about more just cause it's on the, it's on the more cartoonier side of things. It's, it's basically about a barbarian wanderer mm-hmm. who, who's just a buffoon and it's, it's a comedy comic and it's just about him and his dog going on adventures. And it's, I mean, it's just the sort of thing that I enjoy just for laughs you know yeah totally was that originally yeah. published by marvel epic comics dude back in the 80s okay yeah but was it yeah. eventually carried over into dark horse yeah because it's creator owned ergonis owns it so he, he ended up taking it to other publishers got it i think they just did something recently or not even recently like relatively recently where it was grew meets conan or something like that yeah they did that a few years <laughs> right? ago that was a fun comic yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, I just like talking about, you know, as much as I love talking about the typical Marvel stuff that we, you know, that we gush over uh, on week on a weekly basis, uh, you know, the opportunity to shine the light on something like Gru by Argonis is, yeah. you know, that's cool. It's cool, you know? Yeah, it's it's something that people don't necessarily think about with Marvel because Marvel's not really known for any creator-owned stuff. yeah. So there was a period, man, back in the 80s when they were, they were kind of trailblazing with all sorts of different stuff and, and taking chances on people's creativity. Yeah. yeah. Nowadays, you just see them churning out the same old jobber superhero comics over and over. It's cookie cutter stuff, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, I don't know, like, I, I don't know if this would be a reach for me to say that it's something that is comparable that's like a cousin to like usagi yojimbo or something like that well they're they're definitely the creators are definitely friends like stan sakai i believe he letters grew 
Oh, nice. Yeah. And that's and cool. I know Sergio Aragones has, uh, you know, he's done Usagi Ojumbo art and he's written an introduction to one of the volumes. So th they obviously have mutual respect. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So in, in, in terms of the tone of the story, though, I'd, I'd still say that Usagi Ojumbo goes beyond uh, like slapstick comedy. Like Gru is definitely heavy on the slapstick comedy. Um, yeah. Whereas Usagi Ojimbo, there's there's a lot of layers of emotional complexity and depth to the adventure and the characters as well. It's it's not it's not really. Just it's because, not purely yeah, jokey. It's, it's, it's not purely jokey. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Next up, we have Iron Man by Matt Fraction. Uh, this is a pretty long run too. Uh, I don't remember exactly how many issues. I want to say it was like it might have been in the eighties. Yeah. It was substantial. Right. It was a pretty long run. Uh, I would say in the modern era, it's probably the Iron Man run to read. Yeah. Uh, I think any era, man, like the entire yeah. history of Iron Man, I think this is the definitive Iron Man run. Yeah. Like we, we, well, we did put Iron Man extremist on our top 25 list and that's definitely like, you know, yeah, the that, was, most that was six impactful. issues. That was six issues yeah. of perfection. If you yeah. want, if you want like a substantial long run along the lines of a Captain America by Brubaker or Jason Aaron Thor, then Fractions Iron Man is the one to go to. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That couldn't have put it better. Like, you know, if you just want a long form epic, ongoing story that you can follow uh, for over the course of a bunch of issues, that this that's the Iron Man for the modern era. Mm -hmm. I still remember, dude, the one time we went to that quarter bin sale, the Friends of the San Francisco Public Library, and you found the entire run for 25 cents Heck each. Yeah. That was an Heck amazing yeah, day, baby. man. It was. I remember we had, well, I I was actually missing, well, no, 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 I wasn't missing. I had I found the entire run, but one of the issues had a smudge on it because I guess whoever was holding that comic held it for a long time and his his thumbprint smudged the cover. So for the longest Black time... On the cover. Yeah, I was looking to replace that because I was like, why do I have this? I mean, I have it just because I need it for the run, but I need to replace this as soon as I can. <laughs> and fortunately for me, I, it was a relatively short uh, waiting period and I was eventually able to find it again. I believe it would have was even for a quarter. Uh, nice. Not Very in the ballpark. Nice. So. so it's not like I had to pay for it at full price or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, that was awesome when you found that whole run. That was a good day, dude. Yeah. Like, would you say would you say that day was like one of the top twenty days of your life or top ten? Yeah, I, I guess it could probably be nineteen. It it probably nice, man. Make it to nineteen for me. Yeah. So nice. okay, you know. Do you think it would still? Do you think it would rank higher or lower than the day you may get married? Well, I'm assuming that I'm going to marry some kind of shrew, so <laughs> probably higher. <laughs> what about Just if you ever have a kid? Some sort of haggard, loudmouthed, just someone who's just going to drag me down on a daily basis because that's what I'm attracted to. <laughs> we got to link this episode on your dating profile so all of your potential mates can listen 
They'll get the I'm just looking Albert for someone experience. to slowly suck the life out of me as well, I wait for the sweet embrace of death. <laughs> I think you, I think if you did this, it would, it would like it would make all those shrews super happy because somebody would finally want them. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. <laughs> uh, but the thing about shrews is shrews also tend to have high expectations <laughs> so <laughs> they 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 did they tend to shoot out of their weight class <laughs> true that anyways uh next up on our list we have marvel boy grant uh marvel boy by grant morrison and jg jones mm-hmm. uh this was a six issue story that uh, came out during the Marvel Knights era, and it was another, you know, again, this was just a period of time where Marvel was just, you know, coming out, they were just pumping out just great stuff, book after book, and this is another title in in that uh, mm-hmm. in that period that was, that just lives up to that level of quality, so, you know, it's, the contemporaries would, I, I think it came out around the time of the Inhumans, if not a little later, Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you you have stuff. Well, yeah, just uh, the entire Marvel Knight stuff. So you know you'll have like uh, Black Panther by Priest, and you'll have Kevin Smith's Daredevil run. There's there was also that Punisher by Pat Lee, but we don't talk about that. Yeah, we don't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> like every era of great com- of great comics of or anytime there's a bunch of good things. There's always one terrible thing. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the terrible thing. <laughs> this is one of those books, one of the few books that Grant Morrison did for Marvel. He hasn't written that many stuff. He hasn't, he hasn't written that much stuff for Marvel. I mean, there's New X-Men, which is the big one. And then there's Fantastic Four, one, two, three, four, which is a four-issue miniseries. And then there's this. Yeah. And uh, is there anything else? I think he did a Nick Fury short or something like that. Oh yeah, that's right. I think that they was... included it in the one, two, three, four. Yeah, that's true. That's pretty well, much it, though. Just as as a bit of added context, um, and I, I can't speak with any certainty, but from what I remember, he left Marvel on semi bad terms. Just to, I think he was basically offered a deal at DC that he couldn't refuse and he ended up cutting out on marvel at least that's how i remember it i could be wrong yeah yeah that's what i heard too uh yeah. right at the end of his new x-men run he, he yeah he had to deal with dc or they gave and they like just haven't said, talked since yeah and i heard that the weekend it happened they were at a convention and joe quesada got pretty mad at him yeah that's i heard that story too like to the point where he confronted him on like on the, I don't know if it was the convention floor or like at a panel or something, but it was, uh, it sounded pretty dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, was he still in the middle of a contract with Marvel? Well, at the time he was a freelancer, I believe when he was writing new X-Men. So it wasn't like he was a Marvel exclusive, but I think DC gave him an exclusive offer that he couldn't resist. I guess yeah. I'm just the why Joe Quesada would be mad at him because it doesn't sound like he did anything business-wise rude or wrong. 
Yeah, I, mean, I mean, Grant Morrison was watching out for his own interest. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's, that oh, makes I mean, sense. Everybody should look out for their own interest. But I'm saying like, let's suppose he was in the middle of a contract and he bailed on the contract to get a better deal. I would actually argue that's, that's a bit unscrupulous just because like, you know, I feel like people should honor the agreements they make. But if he was a well, free, I'm not. But if he's a free I'm not making agent, an argument then, for it as. A, oh, go ahead. But since he was a free agent and he wasn't under a contract with Marvel, and he finished his new X Men. Like, yeah, I, it doesn't make sense for Joe Quesada to be mad. It's like, okay, you're you're only a person. You have a right to do what you want to do. Yeah, well, no, I'm not saying that it's where, come from where a moral I, place. Yeah, I think it was. I, I think he was thing. just angry. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know, he just he could have made a better offer. Actually, I don't even know if that was the case. It feels like I want to say that he he felt betrayed because he didn't get a chance to make a better offer. Oh, I see. I think that was yeah. the main thing that he was like taken by okay. surprise. Okay. Yeah. He wasn't That's expecting true. Morrison to do that. And yeah, to this day, like Morrison hasn't gone back to Marvel since. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Well, on that note, <laughs> we have uh, Next Wave by Warren Ellis and Stuart Immonen. That's one of my uh, favorite Marvel comics of the past 15 years, man. Yeah. It's, it's just a, a slam-bang, hilarious superhero comic. You know, it, it's satirical at times. It, it doesn't take itself too seriously, and it's genuinely funny. Uh, but it's just so well, perfectly crafted, man. Um, yeah, everybody should read this. Yeah. It's a fun adventure comic, pretty off the wall. And, you know, he just takes characters that aren't uh, super well-known or haven't had a lot of time to shine in the Marvel Universe or haven't, you know, been uh, in the public eye for for a yeah. period of time. And he just gives them a chance to be the heroes of their own story. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I mean, he had Machine Man in there. It's probably also uh, Monica Rambeau's most notable moment in the modern era. Yeah. It's good stuff. Following that up, we have Powers by Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Avon Oming. Uh, you know, it's a... To, to me, this is an all-time great comic. I think one of the reasons why we didn't really think about considering it for the marvel list is is because it i don't really associate it with marvel for some reason because it was their creator owned comic that icon did publish some issues of but it was yeah also published by image comics to begin with um and i guess i just associate it more with image although interestingly since bendis moved to dc Jinx World is now an imprint at DC Comics and Jinx World is publishing the new editions of Powers. So Powers is the very rare, if not only book that has been published by Image, Marvel, and DC. Isn't that <laughs> a weird factoid? That is. Hat trick, dude. <laughs> yeah. So wait, so if Bendis ever left DC, then would the imprint go with him? Probably. I believe so. I don't know why they would continue it if he wasn't there. I don't think he, yeah, at, at this point, I, I don't think it's an IP that he's going to give up. Like, it's it's something that he has a pretty large stake in, if not mm -hmm. a complete Makes stake sense. in. So, 
Yeah. I, I doubt he'd enter into any contracts that give that uh, ownership up. Yeah, and I was also going to say that uh, I think the reason why we had criminal on our list, even though that's published by Image now, is because it was originally launched by Icon and it had a distinctive time on Icon. So I feel, I guess I felt more comfortable associating it with, with Marvel mm. because so much of it uh, was published by Marvel. Right. Makes sense. Next up, we have uh, Runaways by Rainbow Ro- Rainbow Rowell, Rowell, and yep. this this is a pretty recent comic. Yeah, uh, it's probably my favorite. Really recent. My favorite uh, current Marvel comic. Yeah, uh, Drew's mentioned this a couple of times uh, over the course of this podcast, but um, you know we've talked about how the original Runaways series made it to the top of our list. It's it's on the top twenty-five, and for the longest time, those characters after Brian K. Vaughn left the series just kind of they just existed in limbo, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just being shifted from one title to another, and. This is the first time in a long time that we can honestly say that it's felt like it's a title that can stand on its own, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. It's a fun read. Yeah. Uh, we Next we have Secret Avengers by Warren Ellis. Uh, this was a series that came out... Um, <clears throat> you know, following all the other Avengers titles, but there were several Secret Avengers runs with several different writers, and uh, Ellis's run was just six issues, but the cool thing about it was even though all of the Secret Avengers runs kind of had an ongoing narrative, um, you can read his Secret Avengers run, you can read each issue individually, and you don't really feel like you're thrown into a story feet first or anything like that, you know? Right, yeah. You just appreciate it for the issues for what they are. And each issue is also a showcase for the different artists that's working on it. And it, yeah, it, it's one of those masterclass in comics storytelling that you can learn from. Yep. Next up, we have The Silver Surfer by Dan Slott and The Allreds. So Mike, Michael, Mike, Mike and Allred and Allred. Laura. Yeah. yeah. This is uh, Dan Slott's finest moment, I think. The best thing he's ever done in his life. <laughs> 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 I mean, it, like I, I don't ever think of Dan Slott as someone that, whose work I actively seek out. Like I've read plenty of Dan Slott comics, don't get me wrong, but he's He's never someone I think of as a good writer. Uh, but when I, when I got his uh, Silver Surfer comics, I just had to get those because it was Mike Allred, Mike and Laura Allred, and I loved their art. So I read it, and I was actually really surprised by how much I enjoyed the story. Mm. Do you feel your enjoyment of the story was, was manifestly because of the story writing, or do you feel like the art elevated to the point that you felt it sat with you better? Probably the latter. Like if, if the Allreds didn't write it, I probably wouldn't be thinking about it today. I mean, if the Allreds didn't draw it. Okay. But because of the art, um, yeah, that definitely elevates it because 
comics are a visual medium, man. And art tells a story too. And I think when I was younger, I was kind of a, when I was a kid, I was an art snob. Like I only cared about the art when I was in, in my like early twenties, I think I was a writing snob and I only cared about whoever was scripting the comic. But and I now that you're I, an adult, you're just general snob. Yeah. No, I wouldn't <laughs> even call myself a snob. I'm not a snob at all. I, I, I certainly don't consider myself a snob, but I am an elitist. <laughs> so make sure you get that straight. I'm not a comic well, book what snob. Were you gonna say? I'm a comic book elitist. Well, what were you going to say? Like, what was, now that you're older, what, what kind of snob were you going to say you were? Or was that elitist. what you were going to say? Oh, okay. Yeah, now, now that I'm older, I, the way I read comics is more holistic. So I look at a comic by taking the, the, the words and the pictures together, you know, cause that, that's how you're supposed to read a comic. You know, you can't, like, I think people that aren't too familiar with comics, like casual people, civilians, whatever you want to call them, <laughs> it, it, you know, that that's not necessarily something that people do. Like a lot of people that are used to reading prose when they read a comic, they don't really think about the art or consider the art. You know, they just want to read the story and the words. And then there are others that are more visually oriented. It's more about the artwork for them and, and like how the art makes them feel. But I, I think if you're a serious comic book aficionado or an elitist, then the way that you read a comic book, you have to look at the comic as a whole unit, you know, like you can't, you can't separate the words you can't separate the words from the from the art you know the, it all goes together and there are times when the art does convey the story you know we talked about this last week when we talked about the vision and and how there's a lot of scenes in that where the writing is very minimal but the art is what conveys the story and makes those emotions real and uh, you know, you wouldn't have it with one without the other. You got to just look at them both together. And I, I think that with Dan Slott's run on Silver Surfer, if he didn't have the All Reds, I wouldn't have picked it up. But because they drew it, uh, I was interested. And when I did read it, I was really impressed by how the whole thing was, you know. And I'll even say that the words weren't bad, you know, like it. it <laughs> <laughs> there were no bad words. He speak words it's right bad. for all audiences. I, I know it sounds like such a backhanded compliment, but. <laughs> Them words good. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's not necessarily my vision of what the ideal silver surfer story would be, but if I, ignore uh, the context of the character and continuity and what I, what I know about the Silver Surfer. It's still a story that's just, that takes you on an emotional journey. And yeah, a big part of it is because of the art, but I'm not gonna say that Dan Slott didn't contribute nothing to it, you know? Like he- Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, as, it wasn't like just I said- face or anything. Yeah, his, his name is on it. It's, therefore, it is the best thing he's ever done in his life. You know, when you okay. said that you can't separate the words from the art, like I took it as a challenge because, you know, my students say otherwise. <laughs> you could try that. You could try that. I would, <laughs> I would, I would be interested in hearing your, uh, 
experiments in, in trying to do that. <laughs> Take some scissors, cut out the word balloons. Yeah. I mean... That would just desecrate a comic. <laughs> yeah, that would be one of the gravest, most unforgivable sins anyone could ever commit. Unless it's art, you know? It could be art, you know? The collage of words mm. away from the art. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> Although there is one comic in the uh, Mike Allred and Dan Slot run that if you cut it up, it creates a Mobius strip that you can read. That's true. Which is that's true. It's probably one of the most experimental recent things that I can think of. You know, yeah. Yeah, so totally. if. You know, for those of you who aren't familiar with what a Mobius strip is, it's it's basically an endless loop. <laughs> yeah. So you can, if you cut this comic up and like attach certain points, uh, you can read the panels in a way <laughs> that it's just a never-ending, ongoing, infinite loop of story. So, yeah, I think there we mathematically go. is defined as a fiber with a twist. A fiber with a twist. There you have it from a PhD student. <laughs> um, following that up, we have Spectacular Spider-Man by J.M.D. Uh, Mateus and uh, Sal Basima. Uh, we've, we've mentioned this a couple of times on the podcast. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of Spider-Man runs that get a lot of attention um and get a lot of love and accolades uh this is the one that we don't that i don't feel gets as much uh attention even though it rightfully deserves it so this is this is some good spider-man stuff right here it's just you know jm dimateus doing his ultimate spider-man green goblin story that's that, that's how I would define it. You know? Marvel needs to make a collected edition of that whole run, man. That's what they need I to do. I feel like... Don't like they have an epic this? collection coming out? I don't know if it's coming out. Uh, I would love an omnibus of it, though. It, it's something that I would love to have in an omnibus with nice paper. Yeah, or a hardcover. Yeah, Actually, totally. Going back a few... A few um, steps two when you talk about the new Avengers by Bendis that was the one thing I was bothered by when they didn't finish his omnibus collection yeah they made I a think couple it was just too massive the only the, yeah they made a couple but like they made the first one for the new Avengers then they made a different omnibus for like I think when it went over to the heroic age hmm. and hmm. and th that was kind of it there's a secret invasion omnibus or secret invasion okay yeah but it, they, it's not like they ever made a, uh, a, a series of omnibuses collecting his run from yeah. the very beginning to the end, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Next up, we have Spider-Man Life Story by Chip Zdarsky and Mark Bagley. Yeah, that's uh, another very recent comic, actually, but I liked it a lot, man. It was uh, a six-issue miniseries that operates on the premise that Spider-Man uh, was, as he was created in the 60s, let's, it, it operates on the premise that 
he's aged uh, in real time all the way through to the present day. So it, it, it takes, he gets older um, and it, it does touch on different elements of the Spider-Man mythos. It's just a really great read. And even though it's, I'm not a big fan of Mark Bagley's art, it's still something that uh, as far as uh, like recent Spider-Man comics, it's the best Spider-Man comic I've read outside of Miles Morales. So nice. going back alphabetically, what about Spectacular Spider-Man by Paul Jenkins? That's another great run too, man. I love that yeah. run. Yeah, it's definitely something, you know, worth mentioning. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite all-time Spider-Man runs too, the Paul Jenkins era. They yeah, need to the do issue an omnibus of that. Yeah, man, I would love that. Like the last issue number 27 was like a great, like, like just was a great touch upon like Spider-Man as a character. Mm-hmm. Mm. Just perfect stuff. Mm. Next up, we have Strange Tales one and two. Uh, this was an anthology series that Marvel did, where they uh, basically invited a bunch of people who weren't typical uh, Marvel comics yeah, creators. They got a lot to of do... uh, indie people and alternative cartoonists to do their own exactly. thing. So yeah. it's definitely so, not a typical Marvel comic and that's what makes it awesome. Yeah, it's it's super fun stuff and just different ideas and uh, a change of setting. Well, not setting, but a change of uh, perspective, I guess. Yeah, it's got a different vibe because it's, it's definitely got that indie and underground vibe. And if you, if you like alternative comics, you should also check out uh, the DC uh, version of this, which was called uh, Bizarro World. Bizarro World. Yeah. yeah, they did an indie anthology too. Yep. Uh, next up, we have The Hood by Brian K. Vaughn. And was that Steve Holtz? Kyle Holtz? Holtz? Yeah. Kyle Holtz? Okay. I think Steve Holtz might have been from Arrested Development. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Holtz! Yeah, okay, right, Steve so, Holtz. Yeah. so The Hood is, um, yeah, it's a six issue mini series that Brian K. Vaughn did. Um, I forget. Was that Marvel Knights too? It was Max, actually. It was a Max book. Oh, there was a lot of cussing oh. in it. <laughs> yeah. There were, there so were Max. Was, there. Yeah. <laughs> Max was their uh, mature audiences line, and uh, this was a six-issue story that they created about you know. I guess I, I, it's hard for me to describe, but essentially, what a. It, it's the story of a small-time, you know, crook. It's the story of a small-time crook who gets his hands on uh, the means, the magical means to become, you know, to achieve his goal of becoming a big-time crook, essentially. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's just, you know, what he goes through over the courses of uh, six issues. And, yeah, it's it was... Uh, I remember I found this for, like, five bucks at the Apple nice maybe even four bucks and it was the hardcover too and it's you know it, it's a pretty gripping uh crime crime tale that just happens to have superpowers in it and takes place in the marvel universe and it's brian k vaughn and it's brian k vaughn next up we have the vision by tom king and uh gabriel walta and Walsh. We talked. We talked about this all last week. So yeah. So we have an entire episode, episode dedicated yeah. to it. Yep. Uh, 
Uh, in terms of really long runs that uh, that span for you know a bunch of issues, this next one uh, fits in that category. It is Thor by Jason Aaron, and this mm-hmm. is a run that it it had a few title changes. So there was Thor, God of Thunder, and then you had uh, the Mighty Thor, and then just Thor, uh, and then you know it. There was even a period where there was a brief miniseries called The Unworthy Thor. And, you know, there are there are a couple of other titles associated with it, but it's all basically one long Thor run by Jason Aaron. Mm-hmm. And it just completed uh, I want to say in this previous year. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's it's like Drew said, um, this is a comic, this is you know, for the modern era, this is the Thor run. You know? Yeah, totally. We had uh, Walter Simonson's Thor in our top 10. Uh, but I, I could definitely see this Aaron run perhaps even overtaking it as the greatest Thor run at some point. You know, like it's still recent. So, you know, let a few years pass to reevaluate and stuff. But, dude, this Aaron Thor run is just, uh, it's going to be hard to top. Like, yeah. Yeah. Look at Donnie look at what Donnie Cates is doing right now. He ain't even like trying to touch anything that Aaron did. So you can tell that uh it's just sort of standard that other people are every other run moving forward is gonna be in the shadow of the Jason Aaron Thor. Yeah. Yeah. I just Next up we have lived through three different towel changes. More actually, more, yeah, because it kept I, getting new like number I, ones. Yeah, so I might have misspoke, but it started off as Thor God of Thunder, and then I think it became Thor for a brief while, and then it became the Mighty Thor, and then it went back to being Thor again, and then <laughs> there was King Thor was the the, the closing out series with mm-hmm. a, a few mini series in between, so you had like. The Unworthy Thor or Thor Original Sin and um, Thor Gates of Valhalla. So, you know. All all that just strikes me as just really silly. It is. confusing, but hopefully when they put out an omnibus one day, it'll be easier to just get it all. Yeah. That's what I'm holding out for, man. I'm holding out for the omnibus. Yeah. I'm still missing a couple of issues, like a handful, but... I find those issues. I can finally read it all. <laughs> nice. Uh, additionally, we have Thunderbolts by Kurt Busiek and Mark Bagley. That was a 90s superhero run that uh, it was just a fun comic about these supervillains who pretended to be heroes in a period when the heroes were thought to be missing. So that was kind of their their plan. They wanted to like get the good graces of the of the public um but then what ended up happening was that some of them decided that they liked being a hero more than they liked being a villain so they couldn't baron zemo who was leading them he couldn't really successfully enact his master plan when part of the team turned against him yeah it's uh i remember when that first came out it was 
out of all the comics that came out in that era, and it was like a bad era for comics, this that was, you know, the Heroes Reborn era, like this was probably the shining light from yeah. from that period of comics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Thunderbolts, what follows that up is Thunderbolts by Warren Ellis and Mike Diodato Jr., their run on the Thunderbolts. And that's just a excellent Thunderbolts run. You know, it's a, uh, they took, so Warren Ellis gets on the book and I, I think you, we've discussed, we've definitely yeah, discussed this I, I before. I think we talked you about mentioned- this one when we talked about our fresh starts. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. That Yeah. And when uh, Warren Ellis took them over, instead of, you know, make, keeping the old idea of what the Thunderbolts originally were, he just made them unrepentant bastards. Yeah. <laughs> most of them, at uh, least. <laughs> yeah, most they're, of them, exactly. They were basically the Marvel Suicide Squad. Yeah. Um, and while we're on the thread of the Thunderbolts, the next one is another Thunderbolts run uh by jeff parker uh walker and what is that declan shelby yeah kev walker and declan shelby Kev walker and declan shelby and this is probably a run of thunderbolts that gets less attention than the than the previous two but it's still a really good run on thunderbolts yeah very uh very compelling plot driven stories it might be my favorite thunderbolts run Nice. Nice. Yeah. And the final comic in our honorable mentions is Truth, Red, White, and Black by Morales and Kyle Baker. Robert Um, Morales. Yeah. And this is a six-issue comic that – it's got a lot of context to it. I think it might have been seven, dude. I think – oh, Okay, seven I think, issues. I think. I and, could be wrong. Uh, no, I think you're right now that I think about it. I feel like it was one of those things where it originally was supposed to be six, and then they pushed it up to seven. Mm-hmm. But anyways, um, the main thing that I – I mean, in terms of context and backstory, the thing I remember about this is that I think at the time they were talking about the ultimate Marvel universe. And there was discussion of making Captain America black for the ultimate Marvel universe. But, you know, there was a lot of, let's just call it discussion from the masses. And I don't know if it was a popular idea or not, but it ultimate, I I feel like the discussions from that ended up leading to this story where they wanted to tell a story about how, uh, prior to Captain America, you know, there was black soldiers that they were testing the super soldier serum out on, and this was their story. So it's truth, red, white, and black. And uh, it's a pretty moving story. It's good stuff. And, um, you know, it's it's something I'd, I'd, I'd like to talk about more or more in depth in the future at some point. Can you imagine the unnecessary shitstorm that would have been the internet discussion forums if they made uh, Captain America black in the Ultimate Universe? Yeah, I mean, they one of the other compromises, uh, if you want to call it a compromise, is they, they ended up making Nick Fury black instead. And 
I don't think there was a lot of uh, people saying anything at the time, but I don't know. I could be wrong. Like, you guys remember anything? To be honest, uh, this is the first time I've actually heard that backstory for Truth. I never knew that the that it had something to to. I didn't know that it began with a discussion about making Ultimate Captain America African American. Well, I, okay, so let me clarify. I'm 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 pulling from context, so I think. Well, you know what? Let me double check. Uh, I I'll, I'll have to double check on that, but I'm pretty sure that that was what had happened because it. I feel like it started out. I'm not going to say that there's a direct tie between making Captain America black and doing this story, but I feel that the way that everything ended up rolling out at the time, and I could very well be remembering this wrong, uh, but yeah, the the way that it ended up kind of playing out was that they ended up not making Ultimate Captain America black. They ended up doing... Uh, uh, the Nick Fury, they ended up making Nick Fury black instead. And this was like an idea or the kernels for this idea of red, white, and black came from every, from, you know, the idea of doing a black Captain America in the ultimate Marvel universe. I see. I will say I'm glad that kind of did this switch because the impact the story has on like, like I think, going back to a previous podcast you guys did about like it served as a social commentary about how, you know, there were abuses heaped on ethnic populations. And even when they did do service to the country, their legacy was, was kind of obscured or like, like shoveled under the carpet, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a good story. It's a really yeah. good comic. It's it's yeah. kind of a, a Marvel Universe version of the Tuskegee experiments. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. One of the things that I thought was interesting on the trade paperback, I have the trade paperback uh, collection, but it actually has uh, a positive uh, blurb, uh, a quote from Alan Moore. Alan Moore actually said something positive about this comic and, and you know, they quoted him on the cover to kind of help sell it so i thought that that was interesting because i i never heard of alan moore saying something good about a marvel comic <laughs> <laughs> it's only this comic you know this truth is the only thing that he that he uh respected other than probably I mean, like the old kirby stuff right i was gonna say like i mean if you took away the trappings of it being Captain america it almost doesn't feel like a marvel comic you know yeah exactly yeah the the, the final issue was of that story is always something that has stuck with me um, where Captain America in the modern day, he ends up meeting uh, Isaiah Bradley's uh, wife. And yeah, I mean, I, I guess I won't really dive too deep into it right now, but yeah, I always thought that ending man was some pretty moving stuff and it, it would be fun to talk about the whole series in a future episode someday. Yeah. Actually, I think it was it's uh listed as my recommendation pick for I want to say Black Di- uh Black Diaspora or it's it's on the list somewhere. So Okay, okay. Spoiler. 
<laughs> we'll talk about it someday. Maybe when uh yeah. yeah, when we ever get around to our get back to our uh recommendations episodes. But we need Zach for that. And he's pretty pretty busy. Yeah. All right. So that is the end of our honorable mentions list. Uh do we have any additional notes we want to make? I don't think so. I think we can talk about uh, the stuff that the average Joe would have expected or, you know, I think some of the stuff that uh, Shanice mentioned earlier at at the beginning of the episode when when we were talking about uh, like Claremont and and Dark Phoenix and stuff like that. You guys want to dive into that or was there anything you wanted to say before we get into it? No, for me, this is the meat. Uh, (laughs) I did want to ask you, so I believe didn't Dan Slott also write She-Hulk for a little bit? Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah, it's been a while since I read it, but there were certain issues I thought were fun to read there. Like, what were your general thoughts over the whole his run on that? Yeah, I I did like his She-Hulk. I I enjoyed that. Um, it's it's probably one of his I don't know. I guess it's one of his top three things. Like, I like obviously the silver surfer is going to be number one. And I also like this mini series he did with Ty Templeton called uh, Spider-Man and human torch. That one was good. Okay. And the She-Hulk was fun. Yeah. I, I had fond memories of that. To be honest, I think I ended up giving my issues away just cause I didn't think I had to like, you know, when I was just clearing out space, I, I didn't really feel like it was essential to hang sure. on to them. But yeah, if I, if I came across them again, I'd probably just, pick them up if they were cheap and, and read them again. Mm-hmm. How long did you write it for? About 20-something issues? I think so. Initially, it was 12 issues, and then it got relaunched with a new number one, and he probably right. wrote that for another, like, I don't know, 10 or 16. I'm not sure. Okay, yeah. so, so the so quarter pop, it's not too bad. Yeah, it's, it wouldn't be too bad. I will say the other thing by him that I do actually like was um, – he did a, I want to, I forget what it was called, but I think it was like an Arkham Asylum story. Oh yeah, that's right. He did do an Arkham Asylum comic. Yeah, that was a fun, like, uh, well, I don't know if fun is the right word, but you know. Yeah, I thought uh, it was fun. It was, a, it was kind of a cool concept. Uh, it was a story about this criminal who, in an, in an attempt to evade real prison, he pleads insanity. And as a result, he gets sent to Arkham Asylum, and he thinks he's he's gotten off lucky. But <laughs> a white as a result, criminal. yeah, he's a white collar criminal. But as a result, he's surrounded by like true maniacs. Yeah, and, and it's just yeah, it's a ride, dude. <laughs> yeah, Ryan Sook did the artwork, and it's really good art. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I forgot about that one. That's such an interesting I idea. Think, yeah, it's. I want to say it was like either a mini series or an OGN. I forget. I think it's I think a mini series. It, it was a mini series, like six issues. I think. I used to yeah. have it, but I I think I ended up giving it away too. That might be my favorite thing from him. I mean, I haven't read his Silver Surfer, so I can't. Uh, I think it, when you read it, his Silver Surfer, that'll that'll shoot to the top. Yeah. Like, honestly, man, like it, his Silver Surfer is like leaps and bounds better than anything else he's ever done in his life. <laughs> you think that's Even funny? breathing. <laughs> he 
he might be an organ donor, but <laughs> even even doing that doesn't redeem him in my eyes. <laughs> he could donate one of his kidneys to save somebody's life, and it still wouldn't be as good as a Silver Surfer comic. <laughs> So now we're going to go to the part of the list where we talk about stuff that people would have expected to see on our list, but it just didn't end up making it for whatever reason. So, you know, here we go. Uh, first one we have is the night Gwen Stacy died. Uh, what is that? Gary? Is that Gary Conway? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Jerry Conway. And I want to say, uh, Gil Kane, I forget. I don't yeah. even remember uh, the specific issue numbers, but I do know that I was looking at this uh, this Marvel magazine that I, I picked it up uh, a long time ago at a store for ten cents. It was just in one of those bins, right? Um, yeah. And it was it's it's just one of those Marvel magazines that's that was celebrating the seventy fifth anniversary of Marvel. And one of the things in that <clears throat> in that magazine was they had a list of the top 75 Marvel comics of all time as voted as voted by the fans. And I, I don't know like where that vote took place. I don't know if that was on Twitter or on Marvel.com or whatever, but according to the fans, uh, number one was the death of Gwen Stacy. Uh, and I just looked it up. It's amazing. Spider-Man number 121 and 122. Uh -huh. So you know, it's obviously a very famous moment in Spider-Man history. One of the most impactful moments that has, uh, you know, constantly resonated. And, uh, you know, anytime somebody does an adaptation of Spider-Man in a movie or a TV show or cartoon or something, like that's a moment that is always replicated right like you always have the green goblin throwing somebody off a bridge or i, I guess in that other recent movie in amazing spider-man 2 i think he she fell off a, a clock tower or something I, I can't remember but yeah you know there, there's always that element of her death playing out um because yeah. it, it's affected peter in such a deep profound way the comic I, I do think it's a solid comic but in terms of like being considered for our list i don't think we ever really considered it yeah like it it's it's a comic that has a lot of impact uh i don't think it's a bad comic or anything but it just it was just gonna be too hard for it to really stand a shot against all the other stuff that we had in mind yeah yeah i think that's fair um yeah want to move to the next one yeah man yeah uh uncanny x-men by christopher uh slingshot claremont slingshot claremont <laughs> <laughs> why is he slingshot i don't know he's he uh, always uh, puts himself with that S as his middle name. And since I don't know what it is, I always substitute it with something else. Uh, <laughs> you know, just because I don't know what it is. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I don't know what his actual 
middle initial stands for. I just know it's yeah. S. Yeah. So I always just put something in there, whatever it may be, just uh, just in the hopes that that might be his middle name. Christopher Scrumptious Claremont. <laughs> Christopher Sasquatch Claremont. <laughs> <laughs> But this uh, really so, is the, the elephant in the room, right? Like, this is the comic that I I think most Marvel fans would be like, how can there not be any Uncanny X-Men on the top 25? How, how can you not have... How can you have a top 25 and not have a Claremont on it? Yeah. I'm sure that they, there are people who are, like, looking at the list of our top 25 and thinking to themselves, I can't take this list seriously. They don't have dark... Fe- phoenix saga they don't have days <laughs> of the future past they don't have god loves man kills mm-hmm. and i want you to know we don't take you seriously <laughs> <laughs> that's a great that's a great retort albert <laughs> you're beneath us <laughs> so so let's talk a little bit about why we didn't consider the Claremont uncanny X-Men stuff uh, for our list. Like what, I mean, I, Shanice, I know you have opinions on, on Claremont's X-Men also. So I'm interested in hearing what both of you guys have to say just in terms of generally appraising his body of work. I think uh, I'd have. His body of work is vast and when you read it for the first time, you, at least I can say I appreciate it for, for like what it serves as a historical context and how it kind of gave the ideas of what X-Men are that were then literally used like a lot by money creators afterward. But that's as far as I can go saying he, I, like, he had what I would say great, if not good ideas but the execution seemed very, I don't know, unsatisfactory, like mm-hmm. looking at it now. So would you say that it's uh, because it just hasn't aged very well? Yeah, it just hasn't aged very well. But I also feel like there were also some ideas that he threw in there that I haven't heard all of his run, but on occasion it's like, okay, this is a bit like, like, choices as to like why certain characters out of the nowhere appeared in certain stories like but I think it's just more like the idea of having the writer telling you what the artist is drawing kind yeah. of takes you out of the story yeah uh, and I think also giving my personal taste his work was a bit too melodramatic for my comfort well not comfort but like just your preferences yeah but i mean he clearly inspired a generation of creators afterwards so i mean the x-men wouldn't be what they are now without him mm-hmm. marvel probably wouldn't be what they are without him it's true marvel probably wouldn't be without yeah. him <laughs> yeah um, like in terms of our criteria i would say his uncanny x-men that's extremely high in terms of impact yeah it, that's where it scores a lot. Like we, we can't really deny the impact it left on Marvel comics and pop culture really. 
Yeah. But yeah, I just, I don't know, like, just, his his character is just, the way he wrote his character is just, I don't know, if I, I have tried rereading them before, again, I guess there's just something to the way he writes the characters, the way he gives them their dialogue, that just feels too, I don't know. It's melodramatic. Yeah. Just overplayed. It's like, not in a good way. Yeah. Melodramatic, a little bit pretentious, a little bit too expository, a little, just too many words, man. <laughs> too many words. <laughs> too many words. And yet we regret Morrison and Alan Moore's works. Too many words. Yeah. Well, but their words are, there's a, you can call it a poetry story. to their words. Yeah, there, there's kind of a fine line. There's a deliberateness. Yeah, exactly. There, there's kind of a fine line between the poetry and the eloquence of somebody like Alan Moore versus Claremont, who I think comes off as pretentious and forced. Like when he tries to, to write flowery language, when you read it, it reads like somebody's writing or somebody's trying hard to write flower, flowery language, you know? I would say if Peter I, Milligan is, is one of the guys I think of when I think of, if not flowery language per se, but he has a way of grabbing you with, with words that could be, sometimes his hands, a little pretentious sounding, mm-hmm. but it puts you in the right state of mind and mood as to what's about to happen. Yeah, because he's a great writer. Yeah. What were I mean, you about to say, Albert? I was just going to say that it's yeah, like when you read his um, his dialogue, when you read his uh, what are those called? When thought when uh, not thought balloons. Not narrations, but, you know, when someone has, uh, not an aside, what's the other thing? Not what's, uh, a monologue. Uh-huh. When, when you read, you know, when you read him writing a monologue for a character or whatever, like, it, it doesn't feel like it's very, yeah, there's a, there's, the eloquence is definitely lacking, is what I'd say. And it really just feels like, I don't, I'm trying to find a nice way to say this, but it feels like he's just kind of hamming it up, you know, like when when you see like bad stage acting and the guy is like, Zounds, forsooth, what I have seen this day, I am betrayed. You know? <laughs> it like it's over the top and it's like not well done and it's, it's just... He, the way he writes... That, you wouldn't call that Shakespearean? It's... It's not Shakespearean. I was going to say, like... I, I, it's Drew, him I know you're not, eating you're not the savory. On Shakespeare, but even then, I wouldn't, I wouldn't insult Shakespeare by comparing him to Aramon. <laughs> it, it just feels like when he writes these people, uh, his characters having these emotional moments, when I read them, I'm not reading it sincerely... I'm reading it the way I hear what they're what the text or what the words are saying. It sounds like they're just eating the scenery, you know. That's, Albert, if I could, that, if I could that's how I could describe it. I think the way it comes off to me is 
the idea of when a character has to make the personal drama seem overblown. Yeah. But they do it for everything that happens to them to the point it's just like, do you only have one emotional spectrum, which is over-dramatization? Like, it's like, it's like when you make everything sound like it's a profound thing or important thing that's happening, then everything loses, then everything loses its importance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other thing that I was going to say about him is that I, I'm not sure if I can say that I would, I'm able to defend something like the Dark Phoenix saga, but at least, at least as like cliff notes, I can say that that's a fun story, right? Like if, if I was to, if I took the Marvel comic card and read that description (laughs) to myself, or to to anybody that description of the dark phoenix saga that that plot layout in and of itself is a fun like story and it's something that can power one's imagination like but the thing about claremont is i think he's if i had to be generous i'd say he's a mixed bag that had just a bunch of diminishing returns as his career went on Right. Mm-hmm. So, so what if you're not feeling generous? How would you say it? <laughs> at best, his work would at best his work, his best work is Dark Phoenix Saga. <laughs> and it just, you know, steadily declines as he gets older and he's ugly. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what I'll say. I, I like the idea of the Dark Phoenix, the idea that some entity is absorbed into Jean Grey because of her... Um, yeah, that storyline is, is fun. And the idea of well, her going bad because this entity kind of corrupts her, or allows her to be corrupted because of the power she has. Yeah. But, but like, it's just like, ideas are good. The execution left you feeling like, is, is this really a strong story or plot thread? Like, yeah. Days of Future Past was only two-parter, right? But as an idea, I, uh, looking to the future of what does it mean to be mutant and what happened to them, I think it's a cool idea. Was it well executed? Of the stories he's done, considering it's a two-parter, it doesn't oversay its welcome. So it's one of the ones that could be more tolerably reread. But that's the whole thing. Like, yeah. I think some really interesting ideas in, like, Explosions of the X Men as characters, but ideas are only worth so much if if their execution doesn't match up to the weight of those ideas. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. And I mean, what I was gonna say is like for for every Dark Phoenix saga and for every um, you know Days of the Future Past, he's got an Asgardians War out there, or <laughs> he's got yeah. uh, you know that the Mandarin story or like he's got a ton of them. Like even if you look at the uh, early two thousands when they brought Claremont back on and they made like this huge deal about how the guy that made the X-Men great Chris, Christopher uh, C. Bass Claremont is coming back to the X-Men. Like if you ever read those comics at the time, they were were terrible or even the X-Men that, you know, that he was doing with uh, Jim Lee, uh, you know, in in the nineties, like that stuff was, was bad. Man. Right, nineteen ninety one. 
I, yeah. I don't remember what year that was, but those weren't good stories. <laughs> like I, yeah, the funny thing is, a lot of people still regard that um, uh, era of X Men, the on the activist X Men by Jim Lee and Claremont, as a great re restart of X Men. And you know, well, I, as a kid, and I saw that like, at, the, at the Toys R Us thing, like you get all three at once. It's like he's like, oh, yeah. this is cool, like. Like as a kid, because I don't know any better. Like I was in, I was in elementary school. Kids eat paste. Yeah, it, especially it, if you it, make it them to read. Like I read them so much to the point, like the the spine wore off, like the cover fell off the book. My, I had my mom resew it back onto the comic book. Wow, nice. I was, I was a kid, and I was like, I didn't get comic books that often, so like that's all I really had to read. And it, it does capture a a child's imagination. These colorful characters, this conflict that. Like Magneto literally it alters the Earth's magnetic. Uh, I can't even say it. <laughs> the fact that his magnetic alterations cause a tsunami, like you know, I read it now as an adult and think, wait, no, that physically does not that 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 makes no sense. There's like there's no fictitious way you could make that happen. Like as a kid, you don't. I didn't know physics back then, but I was like. When Clement's writing this, he's an adult, and he, like, even though he wasn't a physicist, like, I think there are things he could have easily looked up to say. Is this even a thing that would be viable even in a fictitious universe? And it's like, like I don't know. That that's where I think where his ideas like went downhill drastically. It's like I need to make a cataclysmic event happen. It's like okay, there are so many other things you could make cataclysmically happen, but whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh. But yeah, that was an interesting re. That was an interesting time for Marvel, beginning with those early '90s. Would you even consider? Well, yeah, I guess if we think about Claremont's run on Uncanny X-Men, he he basically wrote wrote it for about 16 years. You know, he started off around uh, I think it was issue 94, and I, I don't remember where he ended might, might've been like around like 270 something. And he also did, did mutants, the right? first three issues of X-Men with Jim Lee and all the spinoffs, you know, like if there's a new mutants, Excalibur. He did X factor two when he first came in the mid eighties, right? He didn't do X factor. That was someone was, else. Okay. He did write uh, a Wolverine miniseries and the first several issues of the Wolverine ongoing series. Oh, right. The miniseries was, was, was with Frank Miller's art, right? Mm-hmm. And the ongoing series had uh, John Buscema. So it looked good. He, I mean, he had a lot of good artists on, on his mm -hmm. X-Men stuff, too. Like, Alan Davis drew some of his X-Men and Excalibur. Bill Sinkovich drew a bunch of New Mutants comics. If, I mean, if you're a Jim Lee fan, I guess you got Jim Lee, com Jim Lee on X-Men. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul Smith. A lot of people like John Byrne. I'm not a John Byrne fan. So that's, that's you know, that's probably my bias coming into play there. Mm -hmm. I really don't like John Byrne. Uh, I was thinking about what you guys were saying about how Claremont's monologues can get ridiculously melodramatic and wordy. And you made me think of uh, this one... Uh, Twitter follow I or this one guy on Twitter that I follow Claremont Run, 
So he's basically yeah. like this, <laughs> basically this uh, professor at this university in I forget where somewhere in Canada I believe, and and basically what has what he does is he researches Claremont's X Uncanny X Men run, and yeah, just like does papers and presentations about it I I suppose, um, and and one of the recurring features on his Twitter is this segment where he invites people to do unironic readings of Claremont monologues. So it, it's, it's funny to me that he has to like specify, it has to be unironic, you know? Like, <laughs> it almost feels like, it's almost like as though he's aware that Claremont isn't that good, but he wants to still believe that, it, that he has to be good. Basically. It, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's some pretty fascinating stuff. Like most of his commentary, I don't really um agree with it i think it's really pretentious and honestly uh just like kind of dumb like likes to use a lot of big words that normal people don't use to to make points that <laughs> that I, I don't think any of us would agree with but hey claremont is obviously a very influential writer no one can deny that he's got a lot of people that still actually like his his stories uh, and specifically those x-men stories and I don't know, man, I just, I just can't get behind it. Even when I take a look at Claremont's 80s stuff, like when you look at the stuff from his heyday, compare his 80s comics to other highly regarded 80s comics that have stood the test of time. And I really have a hard time saying that Uncanny X-Men could compare to Frank Miller's Daredevil. I can't say that uncanny x-men compares to walter simonson's thor you know or even like the indie scene i'd, I'd way rather read teenage mutant ninja turtles from the 80s or or a uh, nexus or ms tree or american flag man like there's there's just like so many other comics from the 80s that have aged better you know there those comics aren't ridiculously expository ridiculously wordy like Claremont's comics are so I, I, I actually don't think that it's because I actually don't think that Claremont's comics uh, haven't aged well I, I just don't think even at the time that they were as great as you know that they're purported to be so it's hard for me to to take them too seriously now like yeah that's that so that that's that's my perspective on on Claremont I don't I don't think like for a combination of like all the stuff that you guys said and the fact that he's super wordy, uh, full of ex unnecessary expository dialogue to the point where he kind of, it kind of defeats the purpose of being a comic um, to the, and, and like on top of that, like some of his other character ticks that really irk me or writing ticks that really irk me is how he writes his characters where everybody has like some, some ridiculous uh, vocal tick, right? Gambit just sounds like a stereotypical Frenchman that, you know, the stereotypical Frenchman that you've ever imagined, mon ami. <laughs> Even though he's Cajun. <laughs> the kind of thing he says, oh, I guarantee. I'll make some frog leg soup, i see. <laughs> yeah, like all these, all these characters have these weird vocal takes, like uh, Banshee's always calling people boyo, Wolverine's always calling people bub. 
Nightcrawler is always saying Akhtung. Uh, <laughs> Colossus is always saying Dasvidanya or whatever, you know, like <laughs> everybody always has to say one word in their native tongue or dialect or something. It, it, it's just corny writing, man. Like when you take creative writing class, like one of the first things that they teach you in, in writing how to write dialogue is how to write stuff like that. And when you, when you're writing dialects and trying to convey, um, you know, yeah, when you're trying to convey people's language and, and vocal tics, like most readers don't enjoy being annoyed. So it's pretty annoying when you when you write. Most readers don't enjoy being annoyed. <laughs> yeah. So you heck of a statement. <laughs> it's, it's just not good to to write dialogue the way that he writes it, man. And then you got uh, things like where. He, he doesn't even, like, he, he was on X-Men so long that he kept on starting uh, subplots that never went anywhere. <laughs> so even if you take his work as a whole, it, like, yeah, it's, it's a lot of stuff, man, just in terms of quantity and volume. If we're just strictly talking about Uncanny X-Men, not even any of the spinoff books, he wrote a lot of stuff, but it's not going to leave you feeling satisfied. And if you do take even some of his, uh, the works that, the, like the stories that he's most famous for, whether it's Dark Phoenix Saga or Days of Future Past or God Loves Man Kills, you're going to find a lot of pretentious, silly stuff in, in those too. Like God Loves Man Kills, the, the graphic novel from the 80s where, that had art by uh, Brent Anderson. It, it was a story that, it's supposed like even from the title you can tell that he's trying to be really serious right god loves man kills and it's <laughs> a story about the x-men teaming up with magneto against a group of religious zealots who are out uh hunting mutants so these religious zealots are called the purifiers and i don't know man like for, for me i think Albert, you know this, but one of my most hated tropes is the religious zealot trope where there's some kind of fanatic uh, religious group that ends up wanting to kill everybody. Like, I, <laughs> I, I really don't like that story. That's, that's, that's my time travel, you know? <laughs> Albert hates time travel. I, I hate the religious zealot trope. That's, that's one thing that gets on my nerves. And, and that whole story is predicated on, on this one guy who's just a like some kind of pastor of, of a religious movement that wants to kill all mutants it's it's just it's just ridiculous to me and there's even a scene where he captures professor xavier and uh i don't know I, I can't remember off the top of my head if it's a fever dream or if they're actually putting him on a cross but like i think it's a dream because he he starts i think it's a dream from professor xavier's perspective where he's like being crucified on a cross and then all of his X-Men turn into monsters and, and they start like killing him, like ripping out his heart and biting his neck. And then there's like some text. I think Claremont straight up tried to quote from the Bible where it's like, they took him to Golgotha and, and like all this. It's like, that's so pretentious, man. Like utterly pretentious. I, I, can't, I can't really appreciate stuff like that. Yeah, it's, yeah, I, it's, I, I can't. It, it leaves me speechless, man. It's, it's just that bad. 
<laughs> yeah, it's, it's just way too contentious. It hasn't aged well. I don't even. I, I, I wouldn't even say it was great to begin with for an eighties comic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like I, I just want to be like if if our podcast does anything, I I wanted to to take some people and I want them to reevaluate the work of Christopher Claremont, you know? Yeah. Like take this as an opportunity to like really sit and think about what you're reading when you're reading his work. Yeah. Is, yeah. is this actually enjoyable to you? And, and you know what? There are clearly people who, who enjoy this like overwrought over the top sort of writing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what to say to those people. I enjoy, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people are gonna like what they like. Um, yeah, for sure. So it, yeah, I, I, I'm with you though, man. Like, I, I would question how anyone could like it. And I, if, if it's there, there's one thing where I would say, on nostalgic level, I can enjoy it. I can enjoy his comics, like. If I see one of his comics, I can still flip through it. And it'll remind me when I was a kid, you know, and I was discovering X-Men comics because that's, that's, that is the kind of stuff that I, I went back to and read. Like my, one of my neighbors when I was a kid, he had a bunch of old uh, Claremont comics. Uh, and, and, you know, I would dig into his collections, uh, into his collection on weekends and, and just like read the stories where the X-Men fought Dracula or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like I, I still—that's still like one of my most memorable comics for some reason. Uh, and and things like even even like classic X Men, because that was the the reprint series from the '90s when we were growing up. That would have uh, they they would just reprint the early '80s X Men comics. So, you know, it, it is his X Men is the X Men that I grew up reading and. In fact, uh, one of his X-Men comics was the very first comic I ever bought as a kid. So there is nostalgia to it, but I'm able to step back from that nostalgia and just be like, yeah, "Yeah, this this is something that is bad. I can enjoy it on a nostalgic level, but I can't enjoy it on a genuine level. Yeah. We don't delude ourselves into believing that it's... uh good (laughs) yeah yeah like i accept it you know with all of its uh flaws well uh, okay i don't accept it but i acknowledge (laughs) all of its flaws i I accept that it is flawed there we go well said shanis well said well said i will say this much um like the title god loves man kills i think is a fine title for a story that the idea was to kind of draw a more obvious parallel as mutants being the representative of a hated group like they're they're the uh how do I put this way? they were the ethnic group that was being you know harassed now that's also that there there are you know religious groups where the leadership kind of uses the the masses to push their own agenda. But typically speaking, those aren't really generally authentic religious groups. They're just more using it as a platform to, to attain their power. So like, I don't have a problem with that trope 
as long as it's honest to the trope that it's not really a religious thing, but more so somebody using the code, the trappings of religion to draw on the masses. Well, the thing with God Loves, Man Kills is that it's very explicit that these guys are supposed to be Christians. No, no, I get that. I'm saying, like, had he been more nuanced in his handling, like, been more fair and, like, trying to address, like, the complexities of what... I mean, if you're writing a story that's supposed to parallel the real world and make a commentary, then you have to treat it properly with respect on both ends. Like, you can't, you can't make one side be the super obvious, like, these are the religious fanatics who are evil, and then the mutants are the good people who are being ostracized. It's like... I don't so know. What I'm, what I'm hearing is the, the Injustice Gang or Brotherhood of Evil Mutants works for comics, but yes. it doesn't apply when your stand-ins are an actual group of people. <laughs> like christians yeah man like i'm right i can i can easily buy into a magneto leading the brotherhood of evil mutants or baron zemo leading the masters of evil like that that's the kind of comic book stuff that that as silly as it is it, it makes sense in in the context but when you look at a, a comic like god loves man kills it's explicitly stating that uh this Reverend Stryker who leads the purifiers, he's an evangelical. And like the first time you see him, he's straight up reading the Holy Bible and, and, and quoting it out loud. Like there's like a whole page of him reading the Bible, man. And it's, it's like, I don't know, man. Like th there's something about it that just offends me because I'm a Christian and I, I couldn't like really, like from the get go, there's something about it that just rubs me the wrong way. And it, it's like what Shanice was saying. There isn't really that kind of like, uh, fairness or, or balance to it. It's just taking, taking uh, I guess, Christians or religious people in general, if you want to be generous and, and portraying him as these crazy fanatics, whereas, uh, yeah, there's, there's just a really striking lack of any subtlety whatsoever. It, it's really ham-fisted. Right. I, I think my main issue here is that it, it is insulting to people of faith because like, if you look at the civil rights movement, a lot of the biggest supporters were clergy, mm -hmm. like genuine honest clergy, not the common citizen who would just go to church on Sundays just to have the appearance of being, you know, God loving. Right. Like, right. And it, so like, if you want to use it, if you want to convey this idea that there's this guy leading a group who's appealing to people's fears or trying to draw them out by saying, this is what God, this is what God wants us to do and showing the, the flaw of human fear being corrupted or misled by a person who has an agenda. That's a whole other thing than simply saying that these are people of the cloth who actually truly believe that mutants are like sins, sin, like just by their existence are sinners. You know, it's like, it's, 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 I don't know. It's just too lazy. It's yeah, exactly. It's pretty lazy. There's, there's just uh, no sense of uh, like, it's, it's not realistic in how it portrays. There's no counterpoint. I think there's that's no, an issue. Yeah. There's no counterpoint. It's not realistic in how it portrays people. 
Right. Exactly. Well, 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 supposed to be regular a... people, real people, and not like a team of supervillains. That's yeah. not real people. <laughs> like, like as an evangelical, right? Like, if they had, even if like Claremont had like a page or a few panels where there were people being interviewed or discussing the mutant population, and actually, that's pretty generous. Somebody... I don't, I don't even think that would fix it. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm saying if they had like a discussion where one of the people speaking was actually like um, a person of faith, saying that that we don't believe that they're evil, like like showing that counterpoint, showing that that perhaps. Stryker wasn't really representative of people of faith, but simply just doing his own thing. But again, using faith to cloak what he's trying to do as something noble. Mm-hmm. I, I have a feeling that would, that would offer something of saying, okay, it's not about religion. It's about the abuses of fear that can drive people to do things that are crazy. I have a feeling that if Chris Claremont put those scenes in where he would like have people, you know, to act as a counterbalance to, you know, whatever uh, striker was Reverend striker was in God loves man kill. Uh, those people would be pretty annoying too. <laughs> and they <laughs> be like, have like, um, stand like, back everyone. We have, have to like, treat everyone parts. equally and love all of our brothers. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Hey, Albert, you should start your own religion now. <laughs> They'd also uh, have like linguistic quirks. They'd probably say a man and a woman after everything they say. Uh, I'm just saying that. I mean, look, I, I get what you're saying, Shane. Is like if another writer that wasn't Claremont had wrote something that was more nuanced. Okay, like I, I don't have anything against that. I'm fine with that. Whatever, right? I'm just. I'm 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 drilling down and focusing on the issue with this comic. My point being that the issue with this comic is Chris Claremont is <laughs> Christopher is not that good Claremont. <laughs> <laughs> that was creative, man. That was creative. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, here I'll I'll try to be fair in in my criticism here. So there. There is a scene at the end of God Loves, Man Kills. Like, you, both of you guys have read it before, right? Yeah, it's been, it's been about seven years or so. Yeah, but you remember how at the end, uh, what happens is they're at uh, one of Reverend Stryker's crusades and the X-Men meet him on stage and he straight up pulls out a pistol and he's about to shoot Kitty Pride on stage in front of like thousands of people. Like that, that's how, that's, that's the climactic moment. But right when he's about to shoot her at close range, uh, a police officer uh, shoots him before he can pull the trigger and kills the police officer. Or I mean, he kills the, the police officer kills uh, Reverend Stryker. And the dialogue there is, is the, uh, after he kills him, somebody in the crowd says, that cop shot the Reverend. And then uh, an usher or somebody who's managing crowd control says, yup who was about to shoot an unarmed little girl. If that's the word of God, it sure changed some since Sunday school. So like maybe that's his way of like trying to capitulate and acknowledge that uh, what Stryker was doing wasn't accurately holding to the teachings of the Bible. So I guess you could say if, if you were being generous, like 
Claremont acknowledges that. Uh, I mean, to me, that that's kind of like too little, too late. Um, it, it doesn't really change things too much because everything else that happens in the comic is is just so ham-fisted. Like even like every every bit of dialogue is just so overwrought and heavy. It's like you can tell Claremont's trying to write a story that has a lot of gravitas and, and weight to it because he's trying so hard. It just, okay. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it just makes it hard to, to take it seriously. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, here's another scene that I thought was pretty funny and it's not supposed to be funny, but <laughs> the very beginning of the, of the story, it's a couple of kids that are, uh, being chased by a group of purifiers. So these, these purifiers are the believers that follow uh, Reverend Stryker's teachings. And they, are, you know, they got guns and stuff and they're just chasing two little kids, not even teenagers. And they just gun them down in cold blood at night at a park because they're mutants. And then they, uh, they not only kill them, but they string up their bodies at the park on, on the chains on the swing. And then Magneto happens to come across their bodies and as he comes across their bodies uh, that are hanged on the on the swing set, <clears throat> he uses his powers to you know he uh, you know gives them a respectful uh, I don't know if it's a burial but he just kind of like takes them down and nobody else is around and he's just by himself and this is what he says talking out loud for the reader's benefit I guess an execution not the first far from the last only this time. The victims are children, so young, so innocent, to know such terror and pain. Their only crime, that they had been born. And for all my vaunted power, I was unable to save them. No more shall die, but those responsible for this atrocity, whatever the cost, <laughs> however long it takes, I will hunt them down and make them pay. So, so okay, so quick question. What have I done? If that was a thought balloon versus him speaking out loud, would that have worked better? It would have worked a little better, but I still would have thought really, it was I think silly. the only thing that pulls me out of that monologue is, aside from it being a monologue, is his statement that, like, I couldn't save them. Like, he wasn't even there to even try to save them. Like, if it was more like an introspection of like observing this hateful event and saying like, I want to hunt these people down. Like, yeah, I could buy that. You know, it's Magneto. Yeah. He, he wants justice for mutants. Yeah. I could buy that too. But the way that it was, it's again, it's the execution versus the idea, right? Like the right. idea, the idea works. Like if you just told me what he was feeling, I'd be like, oh, that makes sense. But when you when you look at the art and see his monologue, honestly, if they just got rid of the words, you could still tell what he was feeling just by looking at the way Brent Anderson drew this. I was gonna say, I think yeah. this is a case where less becomes more. Mm -hmm. You know, like, well, it, like I think as is often the case with uh, Claremont, less is uh, less being more is the thing that he tends to miss yeah. the most. Yeah. I, think, yeah, I would exactly. say that's his like, primary failing is that he fails to recognize that less is more. Like the very act of him showing a set of panels where they're chasing down these two kids and then murdering them and hanging them, like that already speaks for itself. 
Yeah, exactly. having Magneto walk in there and having the artist show through his facial features, you know, you could get a lot more out of what's going on there. And then maybe later on have him like over the course of his, you know, search for justice in his own particular way, reveal how he felt in that moment, how that, why that, you know, made him want to go and pursue Stryker and his people in the way he did. Like, yeah. Exactly. Like, like I don't know. Like, I don't know anybody who sees a tragic event and suddenly goes into a monologue. Like, it's like that. That would be weirdly, weirdly off-putting. You know, it's like it's pretty self-righteous. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, it's away from the somberness of the of what. Just I'd happened. be like, my kid just died. You mind shutting up? <laughs> <laughs> How about you give me a few minutes? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because the the art in this is well done, man. And Brent Anderson does convey all of those emotions effectively just in Magneto's posture and his facial expressions. Well, Brent Anderson's a good artist. He did the art for... um, Astro City? Astro City, yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah, too many words that that aren't really necessary. And it's not just in God Loves, Man Kills, but it's just a consistent pattern you see throughout all of Claremont's comics because it, it's almost as though he doesn't trust his artist. It's, it's like I think he, it's more so that he doesn't, he doesn't want the thunder taken away from him, you know? Because if, if it's his words he believes carries the reader, then it's like, mm-hmm. it's his work, you know? Yeah. It's like, I just don't think he knows how to share. It could be that too, yeah. And that's yeah. like a total misunderstanding of comics as a medium, you know? Like, good writers know when to trust their artists to tell the story. Look at, look at the 80s comics of someone like Alan Moore, man. He, he doesn't do stuff like this. Yeah. I mean, Shanus makes a good point. It, it feels like, what if he just... <laughs> and this is me presuming the worst of him as a person, but... <laughs> <laughs> What if he is just so like oblivious about how he sounds to other people that, you know, to him, this is normal, right? It's like, he loves the sound of his voice and like what he has to say so much that he doesn't realize that he comes off as just a dude that talks way too much. Right. You know, I was good. Has he expressed his views on X-Men stories after he left? All the time. I remember watching um, Cartoonist Kayfabe where he was on, and that dude just talked, dude. Yeah. If you check out uh, the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel on YouTube, it's uh, Ed Piscor and Jim Rugg. They uh, actually had Claremont on, I forget when, maybe sometime during the summer, um, just during the pandemic, and if you watch a lot of cartoonist kayfabe, usually it's a lot of Ed and Jim talking. And when they have an interview uh, joint, when they do an interview with somebody, they, you know, it's like a real conversation. They're like going back and forth and they're asking really thoughtful questions about um, the subjects uh, work. Mm-hmm. But when they talked to Claremont, it was like they, they, they asked them one question and then Claremont talked for like two hours. Yeah. <laughs> It really was yeah. like that, man. It wasn't a conversation at all. It was just Claremont yeah. bloviating. And if that's the case, then I could see why his comics are like that. Yeah. So what were his thoughts? I mean, 
what does he think about X-Men stories that came after him? I don't think he has a high opinion of them at all. Yeah. I think that's in fact, opinion, then. In fact, he might have a low opinion of I'm, the stuff that came after him. I'm pretty him. confident he has a low opinion of the stuff that came after him. Yeah. I know he definitely didn't like the Morrison stuff. Yeah. He hated the Morrison so. stuff so bad that as soon as he as soon as Morrison left, he completely <laughs> negated things that Morrison did. Yep. And he, I, I still remember Shanice when you bought New Excalibur. Excalibur. One and two. Yeah, I was like, yep. no, there's no way it's real Magneto. And it's like, oh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> like the paint Why would he do the that? didn't dry, and Magneto was there. Yep. At least, at least, Jean, at least, Jean Grey stayed dead for a while. For a while. Wait. So, I, I feel like we're going on at length about this, but I, I do want to talk about this a little bit. Yeah. Um. What, I'll, did I'll you probably, send me I'll that? I'll probably edit this into two episodes. <laughs> okay. Okay. What, did you? Did you? Uh, send, you you're the one who sent me that uh, article about how he and. Uh, What's his name uh, on Dark Phoenix Saga? Uh, huh? The artist. Who's the artist on Dark John Phoenix Burn? Saga? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he and John Byrne like didn't get along. So when they were like both working on each other's books, uh, they would like passive aggressively do stuff right. in each other's books to screw the other guy over. Right, right. Well, it just feels like what he did with New Excalibur was just more of that. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Now true. that I think about it, now that I'm connecting the dots, it's like. Oh, he uh, he didn't change much in all those years. <laughs> it's pretty petty. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because he – I really do think he has a very high opinion of himself because his work is so important, you know, it's significant. Like he – Yeah. He – you, again, it's not something that we can deny the impact or the importance or significance, but I think it, it's given him this like unbelievable confidence in his own writing quality and skills and abilities. Yeah. Like I, I'm, yeah. I'm sure I'm, I'm almost positive that in his mind, he, he probably thinks he's as good a writer as Alan Moore. <laughs> oh yeah. I, no, I, I definitely believe I mean, that. I believe he, that he believes, believes that. that. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm pretty sure he's the kind of guy now it just feels like we're, this podcast is devolving into just us ragging on him but <laughs> I was going to say I, we have to make sure that listeners know just exactly why Chris Claremont should not ever be in any top 25. Mm. <laughs> well, what I was going to say was I'm pretty sure he he's the kind of guy who would cite statistics about how much comics he sold when yeah. he was working on the X-Men and how that justifies him as essentially the savior of the title. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, he he's the kind of guy who would have those statistics, like, ready to go. Yeah. You know, at, at, the, at, at the drop of any conversation. Well, and, his uh, assertion was that he's a savior of the title. I'm like, yeah, sure, you can have that. But if he conflated being the savior of a title as I wrote the best X-Men stories I'm like, at that time, because let's be honest, before he came on board, they were just doing reprints. So sure, mm-hmm. yeah. 
I'm pretty sure he still believes that. <laughs> Nonetheless, he doesn't, he doesn't believe he's been surpassed. Yeah. Okay. Like even when Marvel uh, gave him another opportunity to do his X-Men story in the early or mid 2000s, do you remember when they gave him a comic called X-Men Forever? I thought it was yeah. Extreme X-Men. No, X-Men Forever. Extreme X-Men was the X-Men from the after the Heroes Reborn era, I think. But yeah. X-Men Forever was essentially a pocket universe where he could continue his X stories from a certain period as yeah, if so, though they were uninterrupted. Yeah, so X-Men Forever was based on the premise that you ignore everything after X-Men number three, the one that he did with Jim Lee, and the story just continues from there because X-Men number three was the last X-Men story he did. Um, <laughs> at the, that's in that's the not at all confusing continuity-wise. Yeah. So, I mean, it's its own continuity because he, sure. just, he just does how he... Uh, he just does what he imagines would have happened if he had kept on writing the comic. Sure. I remember... Uh, I never bought any of those comics, but I remember reading them at the store and those were some horrible comics, man. How long did that last again? It lasts longer than you'd think. I think there were... Yeah, I think there were several volumes. Yeah, 18 or 20-something issues probably. So it was was a substantial amount. So it's about almost two years. Yeah, probably like four years worth of dialogue that you don't need. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's because it's called X-Men Forever, so it takes forever to get to the point. (laughs) Yeah. That's probably why they called it that. Yeah. Like... I'm sure that the calculus on the part of Marvel was that there'd be people who were still high on Claremont that they could milk for it. And, you know, the fact that it ran 20 issues, it ain't wrong. I I guarantee you, if they said they're bringing Claremont back onto X-Men, the first four but, issues would probably give them huge sales. That wouldn't surprise me. Like, I, well, yeah. Yeah. If they hype it up enough, I'm pretty sure people would buy it. Yeah. But on on the other hand, like the people that grew up reading Claremont probably starting They're to pretty old die now. off too. <laughs> Not soon enough. <laughs> <laughs> I kid. I kid. His run was, was long enough that people our age are pretty high on Claremont at times. So... It, yeah it's it's uh difficult to say that he'll ever really like i i don't imagine he'll ever really be forgotten you know like the history is probably going to be pretty kind to him because of what he accomplished yeah i mean you know just giant size x-men and um well don't forget he actually didn't write giant size x-men Oh right, that was Dang Glenn it. Ween. He came on, yeah. Uncanny number ninety-four. He right, might have contributed right. some it. ideas to Giant Size, though. I'm, I'd, I'd have to look into that. But technically, his name's not on the credits for Giant Size X. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, well, I mean, it's like we said. They're they're still strip mining his stuff mm-hmm. for ideas today. So. It's hard to imagine that he's going to completely disappear or phase out of, you know, popular memory. Uh, like, I don't know if, 
I, yeah, I, I guess I'd have to ask myself whether, like, readers today, what their level of familiarity with them are, right? Like, teenagers, right? Yeah, if there are any right. teenagers that read Marvel Comics, I'd be curious. Yeah, yeah. Because it's hard for me to imagine the someone who grew up reading modern comics going back and enjoying Claremont comics. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of that one time we were at Lee's and there was that one kid who was talking about how he was a fan of uh, John Byrne comics. That's right. And this guy was like, he was a teenager. He was in high he school. Was, yeah, he was in high school and it was just like, really? Really, dude? Yeah, that was interesting. It's... yeah. Nothing against him or anything. I was just not expecting that. Like he's probably yeah. the youngest John Byrne fan I've ever seen in my whole life, man. Yeah. It kind of makes like, you uh, wonder how he even discovered him. Like, what was the comic that I made mean, him discover, decide, oh, John Byrne is my dude. I got to hunt him down. If I had to guess, uh, I I, I want to say that... Dark Phoenix Saga? No, I was going to say... I I I'd have to guess that he might know like older comics fans that got him into comics and there's a chance that they were like this is the real stuff this is you know yeah. this this is he's a he's one of the masters <laughs> you know <laughs> you got to read these the classics father, no bad parenting Lisa that <laughs> and, no I I it wouldn't surprise me if like somebody came to this kid and was like this is classic stuff and then you know there were all these there's all this literature all these magazines that reinforce that idea that chris claremont and john byrne are like you know the dudes so wouldn't surprise me if that's why how that kid got into that but yeah <laughs> i don't know if he's just lying to himself or whether he really believes it <laughs> maybe it's just a phase that he'll grow out of yeah Maybe he'll turn on to something better, like drugs. <laughs> <laughs> the, the drugs would be less harmful to his mind. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you shouldn't be exposing body. yourself to John Byrne comics. Here, here's some cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I can't some wait black until you're a parent. <laughs> I can't wait until you're a parent, Albert. Oh man. <laughs> uh, you guys want to continue with the list? Yeah. Let's we can move on from Claremont. <laughs> <laughs> uh the next thing we have is Civil War. This was by uh Steve McNiven and Mark Miller. Um yeah, I mean, you know what? It's probably up there in terms of my favorite uh, event comics, but yeah, I, I I still have to admit that it's not something that really reaches the heights of anything on our top 25. Yeah, I like it too, man. It, it's, it's a fun comic, man, and I, yeah. I probably flip through it like every so often just because uh, it's fun to look at and... It's it's a straightforward, simple story. I, I think we talked about it a little bit when we did our uh, Mark Miller episode. 
but uh yeah there's this is a, it's a comic that so sometimes i do see it on on lists of, of best marvel comics um you know i don't begrudge people for that i don't i wouldn't mock them for that the way i would mock something like god loves man kills <laughs> yeah War yeah is something I, sure. I, I actually enjoy and appreciate uh, yeah. but yeah it's like you said man it, it's it's not so great that I felt like we could justify having it in our top 25 or anything. It's just a, it's just exactly. a fun event comic. Exactly. Exactly. Like it just doing a list of our greatest event comics. It'd probably be up there. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Right. It just, it just doesn't meet our criteria or it just doesn't meet our criteria quite in the same way. And that's mm-hmm. fine. Yeah. Nothing wrong yep. with it. Uh, next up was The Death of Captain Marvel by Jim Starlin. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is one of those uh, milestone comics, you know, in terms of historical, uh, great historical moments that happened in the Marvel Universe. The Death of Captain Marvel is one of those that gets referenced, Yeah, you know, quite a bit. I mean, I... Maybe less so nowadays, just because it happened so long ago. But you know, there was a good period of time where that was kind of a big deal because he he was one of those characters that you know how they always talk about how um, you know death in comics isn't permanent because people are always coming back. He's yeah. at least for now he he feels like one of the only characters other than Uncle Ben that has remained dead yeah <clears throat> i mean he comes back every so often but you know it's never it's ultimately... either like a, a a duplicate or or a scroll or a dream or you know it's not really the real marvel yeah exactly exactly and now that uh carol danvers is captain marvel there might be even less reason to ever have him come back as yeah. Captain Marvel, so oh, th- I, I think at this point they just would never do that. Probably not. Yeah, I think the idea of of making Captain Marvel become male again would be kind of offensive to the people who like feel like there should be like, a strong female lead character. I don't even think it's that. I, like, I feel like if he comes back, it's just you know we already have a Captain Marvel, so yeah. You know, it's not like we need to have, like, I feel like if he does come back, there's, there might be a story purpose for it, uh, you know, just to have her interact with him, but that'd be the only reason, and he'd probably end up to going back to being dead. (laughs) (sighs) I do think that the comic itself, it was originally published as a graphic novel in the 80s. I do think it's a good comic. Like if you if you like Jim Starlin's cosmic stuff like Infinity Gauntlet or his Silver Surfer stuff or even the his other seventies stuff, like Death of Captain Marvel, it's a it is a solid piece of work and there is yeah. something uh it's it does have a somber tone that is enjoyable because he what kills Captain Marvel isn't some crazy battle against Thanos, his greatest enemy, but it's it's actually cancer. Yeah. So like his final moments are him lying in bed. In a hospital bed. And and all the various heroes of the Marvel Universe 
uh, pay their respects to him. So I, I did think that as a singular work, a singular story, it, it, it was, uh, a, it was a good one, man. Like I'm, I'm still not a big fan of Jim Starlin's artwork. Like I, I think it's fine. does the job. I think he's a better writer, but, uh, yeah, that it's a, it's a good comic, very notable, uh, but again, not something that we seriously took the time to consider for our top 25. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Uh, next up, we have the Cree scroll War. Like, I don't even know what issues these were. Um, this is uh, a pretty big event in the Marvel Universe. Uh, something that every couple of years they... They kind of touch back on, you know, like I, I feel like within the Marvel universe itself, it's something that they're constantly referencing as this momentous event that took place. Yeah. It's definitely um, like an event comic before the event comic period. So yeah. I just looked it up. It was Avengers issues 89 to 97 in the early seventies. Um, yeah. Roy Thomas and Neil Adams and a couple of other artists. Like it, it's, I remember uh, this story because it was always, like you said, referenced uh, even when we were kids in the nineties, like probably uh, in, in the comics that we read, there'd be, you know, like those little annotations or asterisks where they were like, yeah, yeah. remember the Kree scroll war or, you know, somebody would mention it in the letters column or, Maybe even a Marvel card. There's probably a Marvel card about this, right? There's definitely a Marvel card about yeah. it. So, so like just hearing about it uh, was enough to trigger the imagination and make me want to know what it was all about. And when I, I remember when I was in, I think I was in college, if, if not late high school, when I found a trade paperback of it and I was like, oh, dude, I can finally read this. And I remember reading it. But it, it kind of just left me cold. Like it wasn't anything that that uh, stood out or made me really remember it. Right. Just kind of, huh. kind of, kind of wordy, I guess, because it was of that era, which is yeah. to be expected. Uh, I mean, the art was cool. I like Neil Adams stuff from that period. But it story was. I just thought it was a little bit of a slog, to be honest. Like I, I can't say that. I remember it too well or that it left an impact on me. And that's why when yeah. we were compiling our list, it didn't even cross my mind to consider it. Yeah. I mean, if I had to be perfectly honest, this might be a case where it's, there might be some, there might be some case to make that it might be, I, I don't like using this term, but it might be, be before our time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it could be, but, man. But it's, I don't know. I I feel like it kind of has the same thing that um, Chris Claremont, Christopher Claremont Comics has in that it's an idea that gets recycled every couple of years or uh, maybe not years might be a little too quick, but maybe every decade or something like that. And mm -hmm. they do some new version that, or yeah, they do some new version or new take on it. Mm -hmm. So 
like even recently they did empire and i haven't read it but that's something with that sounds like it's got deep roots in the kree scroll war you know it's some kind of uh cosmic war with involving the kree and the kotari i think oh okay well i, I, I don't i didn't read it either so i'm not sure how the scrolls come into play yeah Feels, I mean, Kotadi. Yeah, I think that's C O T A T I. So they have a war with a small town in California. <laughs> is that <laughs> is that what it is? I think that's how you spell it. I could be wrong. I don't even. I don't even know what the Kotadi are. They're uh, just one of those alien races Generic that we see in in Marvel comics every so often. Just when they need a they race like to beat up. They look like uh, walking plants, I guess. Sounds about right. Yeah, they're 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 a group of residents that live just north of Petaluma, but south of Ronald Park. <laughs> <laughs> Those freaks! <laughs> I hope the Cree whoop their ass. <laughs> That's funny, dude. I didn't realize Katari is a city in California. <laughs> yep, it's just off of Highway 101. That's Man, now I get a little close to us. Look. But uh, yeah, Kree Scroll Wars just wasn't really uh, something that we were gonna consider. But one one cosmic war that we did grow up with was the Infinity Gauntlet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you guys have to say well, about the Infinity Gauntlet? Well, also, wasn't Secret Wars also a cosmic war? Yeah, it basically, is. It basically, is. it was. Secret it's another yeah. large event comic. Yeah, we can talk oh, about. But, what, what about what about Kill Crew? Scroll Kill Crew. That wasn't an event. It was more. No, of no, a no. Sorry, that, was that by Grant Morrison? It was co-written by Morrison and Mark Miller. Right. I was. I was more uh, to bring that up because like, I would put that as like something I would have liked to see on a list somewhere. Hmm. Okay. That's, hmm. that's a that's a good one. I gotta read that to be honest. I actually don't have a copy of it. I've never read it. It's something I've seen, but uh, just haven't gotten around to buying it. Mm. I need to find a cheap copy, man. I do feel like it's something that was mentioned, or I've seen on several uh, lists uh, in terms of just being kind of an underrated story. Yeah, I'm sure that's a hidden gem. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, but Infinity Gauntlet is something that I actually have a lot of fondness for. Like for the longest time, I was waiting to find that as a hardcover, and it wasn't until, well, you know, the the uh, Avengers movies, you know, made it super popular and mm-hmm. uh, you know brought it into prominence that they finally made a hardcover of it, and I just got it earlier. Uh, late last year, actually. So, um, yeah, like this might be something I have rose-colored goggles about because mm-hmm. I I just enjoy it because it was such a big part of my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I'd have to say that I I don't delude myself into thinking that it's as good as uh, that it's got as much artistic merit as any of the things on our yeah. list yeah, exactly. or that it lives up to those. So that's because you've got credibility, Albert. You don't play I favorites. I have credibility. I have integrity. 
Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm a father. I'm a, I'm a hellraiser. Wait, you're a father? <laughs> I'm a so-so <laughs> father. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a convicted sex. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you don't expect me to edit that part out of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) He offends himself sexually. No, that was, I was quoting Mike Tyson in one of his interviews. Let that be known. (laughs) (laughs) No, so, yeah, but I don't, yeah, I, I, I I have personal affection for Infinity Gauntlet, but I don't, uh, I don't, I have not tried to convince myself into believing that it is better than it actually is. Yeah. I, I respect that. And I'm with you too, man. Cause I, I enjoyed the infinity <laughs> gauntlet. I reread it, uh, not too long ago, maybe, maybe within the past less than two years, you know? So it's still fairly decently recent in my mind comic. I enjoy, but again, not something that I seriously would have, thought about for the top 25 mm. and i'd even say the same goes for uh, secret wars which uh shane has brought up too because secret wars i i read that when i was a kid because uh, there was a trade paperback collection and it was from the 80s but same comic or same concept you know just a crossover where all the heroes end up fighting a bunch of villains um, <coughs> yeah i mean I, I liked it for the nostalgia i, I don't think i could really read Secret Wars as an adult today, whereas at least with Infinity Gauntlet, I can still read it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I imagine Infinity Gauntlet is way more readable than Secret Wars is. Yeah, the 1984 yeah. version. Yeah, 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 sorry. Uh, to clarify, there's the 1984 version had Secret Wars, and there was even a Secret Wars 2, mm-hmm. and then... In recent years, there was a Secret Wars done by Jonathan Hickman, and that one's actually good. So yeah, that one's great. Yeah. Um, we also what have Demon in stuff? a Bottle, huh? What? No, go ahead. Oh, <clears throat> we have Demon in a Bottle, which was—I don't know the issues for this, but this was a pretty famous Iron Man story. It was the one where. Tony Stark succumbs to alcoholism and, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, it's kind of in that era where they were trying to do more serious stories with superheroes. And mm-hmm. uh, the big thing here was that Tony Stark was, you know, fighting a, his greatest enemy, a, his greatest enemy, which is alcoholism. Oh, yep. Yeah. I just uh, looked it up. It was Iron Man issues 120 to 128 written by David Michelinie and Bob Layton and art by John Romita Jr. Uh, yeah. If you know us, we don't have a lot of affection for David Michelinie. And uh, <laughs> I think that pretty much speaks volumes for itself. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> I grew up reading David Michelinie's Amazing Spider-Man comics. So... He was one of the first names in comics that I really remembered, but it just goes back to how nostalgia and, and the rose colored glasses, you know, they, those don't really 
those can't really come into play here because when we're just trying to grade stuff on our criteria, nostalgia isn't a factor. Yeah. Yeah. If anything, nostalgia might even be a hindrance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Demon in a Bottle was from the late 70s, I think, or was it early? Let me see what year. Uh, yeah, late 70s. So it, it does predate us, uh, but it is something that I went back and read in trade paperback form, but uh, not really something that resonated with me. I like the concept of it because even to this day, I will still say that Iron Man's greatest foe is alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I wish they had made one of the movies about it. <laughs> you know, well, I, wish, I wish they gave us an adaptation of Demon in a Bottle instead of Iron Man 3. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, um, it's, I, so in this moment, in this conversation just now, this is the first moment that I've realized that David Michelinie actually wrote that. And oh. yeah, and I think that's the thing, or not that's the thing. I think that, um, again, just kind of drawing my own conclusions here, but it's like that might explain why he got so much work for so long after that, you know? Cause yeah. I think I got a lot of work, and I think Demon in Bottle was just a huge moment in comics. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, definitely a huge Iron Man moment, but you know, well, well into the '90s when we were kids uh, growing up, we would still see his name on stuff, mm-hmm. and it just kind of makes you wonder, like, what is he living off of, like? Yeah. What- why do they keep giving him work? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that kind of makes sense now. <laughs> he even wrote Superman for a long time too in the 90s. Oh, I think I vaguely remember that. Okay. I want to go back to, we're talking about cosmic stuff. Like I think one title that's conspicuously missing that I would have actually kind of, I don't know if it was this to go to the top 25, but Annihilation I think is pretty fantastic. Yeah, yeah, the original Annihilation, that one, uh, if we were doing a a list of best event comics, that would be pretty high up there. Like, I I do think that the miniseries, as well as the tie-in miniseries, are pretty high quality, especially for an event comic. Yeah. And when you have them all together, it it is a complete satisfying story and it's it's pretty substantial too the annihilation conquest sequel that one wasn't very good that was a uh, <clears throat> abnett and lanning but keith giffen wrote the original annihilation right that yeah that, that was a good comic too but i i guess it didn't really cross our minds when we were developing the list either it, it was just another one of those comics that I enjoyed was fun. I would definitely reread it again in the future. And if I found it for cheap, yeah. I'd probably buy it. I think I still have the issues actually. I have the six issues of the miniseries somewhere in a box. Mm. Did you ever read that one, Albert? I don't think I ever read that one. Um, yeah, I, I didn't read any of the Annihilation stuff. 
just, uh, I guess I just never came across it. Like, I, uh, I guess it's at the library. I could make the effort to go get it and read it, but I've just had so much stuff, other stuff to read that yeah. it's kind of on the back burner for me. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so another uh, era of comics that most people would kind of expect to see, what most people would expect to see on their list would be the John Byrne era of the Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> man, where do I start? Uh, <laughs> you can start I had with to uh, John Byrne, how he uh, <laughs> told a story about Reed Richards and meeting Sue for the first time. Okay. Uh, so one of you know the this, story Shainus? elements. Was huh? that? Do you know this element, uh, Shanus? The story element? Oh, about how, how John Byrne told the story of, of uh, Reed Richards meeting Sue Storm for the first time? No. Oh, you, so one of the... Get your popcorn ready, man. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the story elements that he changed about the origins of the Fantastic Four that no one asked for was <laughs> that Reed Richards met Sue Storm as an adult when she was a little girl and she was his neighbor. He was, she was basically the neighbor girl who grew up falling in love with... Wait, how uh, old she the, in this... In this- I want to say she was like nine or something. How old was he? A grad student. I think he was living yeah. in her board. Her parents ran a boarding house or something. So I'm not. I'm not sure if it, she was a next door neighbor or if she was just in the same house in a different room or something. But that's I would have asked it. him to leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if if it was like her child childish infatuation with him, that's not unreasonable. How did John Byrne portray that, though? Uh, I mean, from what I remember, it was that she had this crush on him as a child. And she, I think from context, she pursued him into adulthood. But you have to realize that John Byrne is a man writing this scenario out. <laughs> there's a, there's there's something a little creepy about that. And again, make note of this. This was a part of their uh, backstory of their history that did not need changing, that did not need explaining. No one had to Yeah. No one had to no one had to retcon any of this. This is something that he took a, upon himself to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, it's yeah. It's it's a pretty creeptastic thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> but I was gonna say earlier, like if I had to be perfectly transparent, one of them, one of the reasons that this probably doesn't make our list is we don't have too much affection for John Byrne either. I don't have um, any affection for him. I was 
I was trying to be diplomatic, but okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> As a person, I would say he's he's a pretty pretty gross human being. So, uh, you know, I, I you know, I, I wish I could say that I was such a purist when it comes to comics that I could that you could ignore, ignore the artist the, and the, just look at the art yeah but I can't yeah and I'm not gonna ignore John Byrne the man because he just screams out to have people notice that he's a disgusting jerk <laughs> <laughs> yeah you can just go to his website and look on his forum and find all the stuff that he says and posts yeah he's a pretty nasty person yeah I, I've got more affection for Claremont than John Byrne <laughs> uh, there, yeah we mentioned it earlier but there was a there was a period of time so they, they both used to work together on comics but Eventually, they had a falling out, and they both went their separate ways to work on their respective books. And what ended up happening was they were both so petty that they would go out of their way to screw each other over by messing, by introducing story elements in their uh, in the books that they were working on to screw over the other guy. Yeah. So, like for example, you'd, you'd have something like uh, I don't know, like. Dr. Doom might show up in an X-Men comic and the X-Men might beat Dr. Doom. And then uh, next month or a couple months later, John Burns writing Fantastic Four and he has Dr. Doom give him a, a monologue where he was like, of course the X-Men defeated my Doom bot because I allowed them to. There's no way they could ever defeat their true Dr. Doom or, you know, something silly yeah. like that. And then, and then uh, you know, a few months after that, Claremont would write Dr. Doom back into the X-Men and be like, yep, they, I can't believe they really beat the real me. <laughs> just like, <laughs> stupid. It was just a lot of back and forth. But again, uh, out of those two, uh, I'm rooting for Claremont on that one. Yeah. <laughs> At least Claremont's not a bigot, right? Exactly. Yeah. That, that yeah. counts for a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh when all else fails, <laughs> that's the tiebreaker. Yeah. Um, another thing that your average fan would probably expect to see on the list is the Age of Apocalypse. Um, yeah, just in brief, this was a story about how... Well, I've mentioned this before. Uh, it's basically the entire planet gets uh reality gets altered by the death by the premature death of professor x, Pro professor x and as a result the world becomes the re their current reality becomes one in which apocalypse rules the world um it's just bad <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't like I, I i wish i had like some thought out like critique that I could give as to why, uh, but it's just it's just a bad. Crossover, <laughs> man, a '90s X-Men crossover. Say no more. That's that's all you need to know. Yeah, that was yeah. a thing that that drove me away from comics for several years. 
it was that in the yeah. Clone Saga. It was just too much for me, man. I, I couldn't handle that. But people love it. I, I don't know. I, I, I have a feeling that the thing that they love about it is the fact that you get to see um, well-established characters in, yeah, with different looks. That's yeah. that's the thing that they tend to gush about, right? Is like Wolverine's missing a hand and Cyclops is missing an eye, and uh, <laughs> you know, look at them. They they all look like Mad Max versions of themselves. <laughs> like how cool is that, you know? And it's like it's not cool. It's yeah, not at cool all. at all. <laughs> you know, I'm not I'm not thirteen. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, no thanks. I think a lot of people our age who grew up reading stuff like that, they haven't been able to let go of the coolness that they felt when they were little kids reading it. Yeah. They, they carry that into adulthood and that's how you end up with with uh you know who, man. Stay fresh. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no thank you. He can keep his channel. He can he can keep his opinions. He can keep his comics. No yeah. thanks. <laughs> <clears throat> oh man you have any thoughts on age of apocalypse Janus? i've never read it any of it any of it really yep wow you're lucky yeah, yeah. i mean i like i feel like you've got more comics than i do so i i just kind of assume that you came across it at some point I I I didn't read comic books for a long time. Um, I only got back into it in college. So this is already. It's like I skipped a huge. I skipped a huge of the 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 downturn of comics in the nineties. Well, you're better for it. You're better. Yeah, for I know. It. You didn't you didn't miss out on anything by not reading Age of Apocalypse. Yeah. The the premise sounds. It's like it's where it's like. Um, the idea that Xavier's son would want to go and stop Apocalypse from taking over. Sorry, would want to stop, like, whatever the premise is. As an idea, again, it's, it's not more terrible. of Days of the Future Past. It's, it's some other version of Days of the Future's Past or, Days you of know. Future Past, Albert. You always add that extra the... Oh, sorry. It's, it's like the whole idea of him, of a character wanting to prevent the future by going to the past to alter something and then messing it up. It's, 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 uh, it's, a, it's been done before by many, many different writers. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to go to, but as, as the idea of doing that, sure, that could work. The question is, was it executed well? And that's the whole other question, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it was not executed I can honestly well. say it wasn't executed well. And even as an idea, it wasn't a particularly fresh idea at the time. So I, I have no love for it. Yeah, that's something I have no nostalgic appreciation for either. Yeah. So it doesn't even yeah. have that going for it. There was absolutely no way it would ever make our top 25. Yep. Uh, the next one up on our list is Planet Hulk. Uh, this was by Greg Pak. I don't remember who the artist is. Uh, I think it might have been Aaron Lepresti, but 
it's not too important. The art wasn't anything special. Yeah. Um, it's just a story about the Hulk being shot off into space by uh, the heroes in the Marvel Universe. And, you know, he crash lands on a savage alien planet where he's forced to become a gladiator to, uh, a gladiator for their games. And he eventually teams up with his other fellow gladiators to overthrow the ruler uh, of this planet and establishes himself as king. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty much the story. Uh, like... If I have any affection for this at all, uh, I'd be able to say that, you know, it's a fine action comic, but it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't live up to uh, the four, it doesn't live up to the four criteria that we established. And it just doesn't compare to the other 25 uh, comics that we already put on the list. But I would even say by that standard, like, I, I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't, perf- I couldn't say that in all sincerity with belief in my heart that it's that good. Like, it, it's a fine comic, but it's the type of thing where I could maybe read it once every 15 years, maybe. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. You think so? Depending on how long you live, yeah. i mean i don't think my opinions of it are like bad but they're not particularly high either yeah i i read that when it was serialized it was a comic that i guess a lot of people seem to like it at the time uh i mean i read it but i i can't say that it particularly stood out to me like, yeah it's not really the kind of hulk story that i wanted to read i think for me the the best thing about it is that they took that idea and applied it in thor ragnarok yeah and yeah that was way more entertaining to me than the comic yeah i'd say so uh Shanice, did you read planet hulk i did What'd you think of it? It wasn't anything special, but it was, I, I don't know, it was fun. You gotta see Hulk be Hulk. But I think the part of it that I enjoyed was seeing how Bruce Banner almost, he never really showed up during that run, at least very rarely. It was just Hulk. Yeah. Embracing the Hulk part of him, but it was Hulk being Hulk, but being but Hulk also being in, intelligent in the regard of like he liked fighting, but he wasn't just a mindless brute. <clears throat> yeah. So he was clever. I, I I thought it was I thought it was well I thought in that regard it was well executed. Yeah. I mean, it essentially felt like it was a Hulk story in a sci-fi slash semi-fantasy setting. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, um, basically. Yeah. Which, I guess, wasn't something that we had seen... I want to say it's something that we haven't seen done with the Hulk before. Like, Yeah, I, can't, I certainly can't think of a, another story that predates it that took him to space. 
for that. I, well, I do think there were some older stories where he went to space, but it was always like, you know, just him on some foreign planet, and that was it. You know. Uh, yeah. No. Nobody really made it an epic uh, struggle for life and exactly. death. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I think it was also just yeah, the but change of scenery because, like, you know, typically a Hulk being on Earth is he can do so much damage mm-hmm. and as a consequence, he's seen as a monster even when he tries to do good things. And he's finding a place where strength and brutality is what's rewarded and encouraged and he's able to turn that to do good for that for the people on that planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's feels like you've got more true. positive things to say about it than we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think for me, I mean, it was just a a story that I read, and uh, I think there was this one time when I was tempted to to buy a cheap copy of it, but the feeling passed, and I ended up not buying it, and I don't regret that. No, I don't. I, yeah. I don't have it. I don't own it. I just. I think I read it at Borders Books when we were like hanging out there every now and then. Just like, <laughs> back when Borders Books. Would you read it thing. again? I, I wouldn't mind reading it. Like it, it, to me, I see it as like, a, like it's like a it's like the equivalent of, of a fun action movie, mm-hmm. where the characters have interesting interactions. There's an evolution to a particular main character that I have some interest in. Like, do I think it's like one of the best stories ever written, I wouldn't put it on the top 25 of any list I would conceive of. But if somebody <laughs> asked me about, no, but it, like, but there's so many, there's so many works already written. It's like, but if somebody asked, what are some Hulk stories I'd recommend, you know, aside from Hulk, the end, um, stuff like that, I'll say, yeah, read Planet Hulk. It's, it's, it's a fun, it, it's a fun adventure the Hulk goes through and as a character he evolves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, you just reminded me of something. I think this one time when Albert and I were at a sale at the, yeah. at the quarter bin sale, yeah, there was a yep. there was a dude that we overheard talking to some other dude, and he was like, "Dude, I just found Planet Hulk. You gotta read this. It's the greatest comic of all time." <laughs> no, he no, said no, it was no. the greatest comic, right? What he said, no. What he said was, "It's my favorite graphic novel of all time." Okay. <laughs> Because we both kind of like, we both kind of twitched and like gave each other like a knowing look because we were like, <laughs> is this guy serious? When someone, a, when someone says a graphic novel, the connotation is that it's it's more than just a comic. It's kind of uh, it's high it's art. Like a, yeah, it's almost like artistic, right? <laughs> uh, it's a prestige piece of work, you know. But Planet Hulk is not that. <laughs> <laughs> We were just like, what? Really, dude? <laughs> yeah, that was funny. <laughs> that was that's pretty funny, dude. Um Yeah. Uh which leads to the next comic on our list, which was World War Hulk. So that's a it's a follow-up story to Planet Hulk in in that uh, in Planet Hulk, all the other superheroes shot him off into space, and in World War Hulk, he comes back to Earth to get his revenge on mm-hmm. on the heroes of Earth with the with the uh, with the with the fellow gladiators and, that he's made 
allies with on this new planet. And uh, I'd, I'd have to say, you know, what I felt in Planet Hulk pretty much applies here to World War, World War Hulk. Yeah, um, I, I enjoyed World War Hulk a little bit more. Uh, I'm not the biggest John Romita Jr. fan, but I will say that his art was way better than whoever drew Planet Hulk. Yeah. And the other yeah. thing about World War Hulk is that I felt because it was shorter, it was more focused and the action was more energetic. Um, yeah. And the, the pace, the pacing of it was brisk. So it was just easier to read. And that, that's something, if I found a cheap copy, I would, I would probably pick it up. Yeah. Uh, as an, as far as event comics go, it's, it's probably above average. Yeah. Well, here's the thing that I remember about World War Hulk. Um, so since it's a story about him getting revenge on the superheroes that sent him into space, each issue was basically the Hulk fighting one of the, getting revenge on one of the superheroes that wronged him. Mm-hmm. So it was just five issues of just the Hulk beating up on people. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, so I, I, I think the premise wasn't so much that he was trying to get revenge on being sent to uh, the planet he was on. I think it's because uh, what we, we'll find out later on what actually caused it, but I think something, some device in a ship that he was on killed his wife. Power, exploded and it killed his wife. And I oh, think right, wild, right, right, right. Yeah, and he thought because the explosion happened there that he thought that the Avengers were hope were hoping to just entirely eliminate him and room as a as a potential physical threat to Earth. Mm-hmm. Right, right. No, you're right. You're yeah, right. it was all right, man. Uh, yeah, just not really something we could seriously. It's not top twenty five worthy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it's it's I would, I would consider it like. The Fast and Furious of of Marvel. <laughs> it's got energy, you know. It's you know. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I I'm not a really it, big look, fan of Albert, those movies. It answered the it answered the age old question that all Marvel fans want to know: Who's stronger, the Hulk or the Sentry? <laughs> Did they want to know that? I'm not sure if anybody ever wondered that. <laughs> well, they published it, so it must have been a question that people were wanting to have answered. <laughs> if you make it, they will ask the question. That is that is a good point, man. Uh, I never wondered who would win in a fight between them until I saw the comic where they fought. <laughs> 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 it's like playing a game of Jeopardy. You give the answer, and then you ask the question. Uh, uh, the next comic is Spider-Man and the Adjectiveless Spider-Man by T. Mac, oh. Todd McFarland, Todd the Mac, the, the Todd man, Father, the Mac Daddy, the Todd Father, Todd the Mac, the Man, the Legend. <laughs> one of the the best-selling comics of all time spider-man number one Very yeah popular comic i'm one sure of the most if, influential uh, comic book artists as well i'm sure if 
money or or like sales was one of our criteria yeah. for what makes the top 25 on this our list. Top three. Yeah, but money or sales isn't on our list. But another way to look at it is if crap was to make it on our list of <laughs> criterias, this would be number one on that list too. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's hard to say what's what I can appreciate about Spider-Man other than it's nostalgic for me. I don't even, I can't even say that. <laughs> really? Yeah, my, well, I grew up. Uh, buying some of those issues man so for me it was it's it's nostalgic but i know it's crap i tried rereading it when i was older i tried rereading yeah. it when i was an adult it's worse than it just gets worse with age yeah i actually reread it i want to say like two two years ago and uh man it is uh it's pretty dumb. It is pretty <laughs> dumb. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm like personally I, not a big fan of Todd McFarlane's artwork. So it's already got that going against it. But the other thing is that he's even worse at writing. Yeah, than he is at exactly. Exactly. He is... I, back to your statement about nostalgia, I will say that if I do have nostalgia for his comics, it was his amazing Spider-Man stuff. Cause I did have some of that. Like mm -hmm. I have that issue where, you know, where you have the lizard tearing Spider-Man up on the cover. Yeah. Or there's the issue with uh, a hobgoblin chance. Oh yeah. Right. There's the hobgoblin issue. But so like there's some nostalgia there for me for those Mm -hmm. But in terms of his, you know, adjectiveless Spider-Man comic, yeah, not so much, man. <laughs> yeah, like he—he's a guy who is obviously very successful. Uh, so if I guess if you if you're the kind of person that respects the hustle, then you respect the hustle, I guess. And he's got <laughs> that going for him, but. If you just care about comics, man, uh, his his art style is just over embellished. He he just cross hashes so many things needlessly to the point where his work is overly busy. You can't really tell what, what's going on because it's so chaotic and cluttered. It's not really uh, conducive to understanding a story, really. And I think. Uh, Gary Groth, the the uh, publisher of the of Fantagraphics and the Comics Journal, I remember what he what he said was that Todd McFarlane never really learned the craft of comics; he just faked it really well. And yeah, that, that sounds pretty accurate. It. Yeah. What, what did you say, Shane? Well, fake it till you make it. Yeah, he, he made, made it. it he yeah, made he it. made it exactly. He's he's super successful running his own company, doing doing his thing, man. Like no one can dispute that. No one can dispute how how popular his Spider Man was or even influential. I mean, even 
a lot of artists today uh, respect him and, and like his stuff, but uh, yeah, I can't say that I'm on that train, man. Yeah, you're not on the you're not on the T train. I'm not on the T train. <laughs> I missed the bus, dude. I missed the bus. Uh, it's called a Mac attack. <laughs> <laughs> Were you a fan of Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man, Shanice? You know, I haven't read it. I might have read an issue here or there. Uh, but I've never read enough of it to draw any distinct opinions, and I don't remember what I read because it's been so long. Yeah, so it, I'm all sure it didn't all stand out. All I remember is that the art on it was interesting. I don't know. Like, I mean, the, the whole that whole period of time in the early '90s, mid '90s of Marvel comics, just like, like again, what I remember is my thoughts as when I was like when I was a kid was, oh, there was this really cool stuff going on. Like they super sold all these like, events, like, um, Fatal Attractions, Maximum Carnage, this, that, the other. And as a kid, like, you don't know any better. So you get really hyped up about these things, these events that you think are, like, like game-changing to these characters. Yeah. And then as an adult, you pick up those comics, you read them, you're like, this is utter stupid trash. And then it's like, you read one or two issues, like, nope, I can't do this anymore. Like, you feel like your mind melting down. You're like, no, I'm not going to do this to myself. Yeah, exactly. So I would, I read a Todd McFarlane and Spider-Man, if somebody put it in my hands and gave me a dollar to take my time to read it, I'd read a few pages of so it. So they'd have to pay you to read it? <laughs> pay me. I, I'm, I'm just too busy to read, you know, that stuff. <laughs> Would you read uh, it for, what's, is $1 the minimum amount? <laughs> okay, let me, here's, let me express my thoughts on Todd McFarlane. He, because he created Spawn, right? Yeah. Yes. The best part of Spawn was when he didn't write it. That is true. I, I like the Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman spawn stuff. Yeah. That's true. They they did write a couple issues of Spawn. I'd, I'd probably have to say that for me, Todd McFarlane's finest moment was when Frank Miller wrote the Batman Spawn crossover that okay. Todd McFarlane drew. That, that's oh. probably his finest moment for me. And it's pretty much entirely due to the to the due to the writing <laughs> interesting you never read that like, comic albert oh would you say it's actually good yeah really yeah huh. it's it's a good comic uh it. it's it's not it's not miller's best comic or anything but it's it's something that is it your favorite graphic novel <laughs> It is not my favorite graphic novel. <laughs> I would I would not say it's my favorite anything. It may, well, I might say it's, I guess it's my favorite Todd McFarlane joint, or maybe yeah. it's probably my favorite Spawn comic. <laughs> oh man! But uh, yeah, I, other than that, I, I can't say it's my favorite anything. <laughs> uh. uh. Um, next up we have, so we mentioned Deadpool by, uh, Joe Kelly earlier, but we're going to mention 
Deadpool by Daniel Way, which was, I think the masses generally had high regard for it, but honestly, Daniel Way is just, he's pretty lowbrow, and I can't say that, I, I, I've actually bought and even read a fair amount of Daniel Way comics, and he's the kind of writer that left me feeling pretty much like I hadn't read anything after like that. That's, that's how I would describe reading his comics. It's, it's kind of bland and yeah. empty. Forgettable. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like I'll read, I'll, I'll finish reading something and I'll be like, Oh, okay. I, I just read a comic for the sake of reading a comic, but I, I got absolutely no satisfaction from reading any of his work. Yeah, and his I remember his Daredevil. I mean, his uh, Deadpool was one of those comics that a lot of people uh, that I knew were were into it. And I think it might have been one of the books that kind of rocketed Deadpool to like uh, being a fan favorite in the early two thousands. Yeah, but it it yeah it it was pretty lowbrow stuff. Like I didn't think the jokes were funny. Uh, I I would say that he took the least interesting elements of Deadpool and amplified them and even to this day that's kind of why Deadpool is as popular as he is because of elements like that like the when you look at the Deadpool movies which I personally don't like it's, it's all about like silly almost kind of slapstick slash frat boy kind of humor. It's a lot of him acknowledging the audience and, you know, in that kind of winky way, which maybe the first time you see it in your life is kind of clever. But now, like, when that's, like, his gimmick, it's it's just kind of tiresome. And I, f- I feel like the just the, the, the random style of humor that Daniel Wake popularized with Deadpool, it – it was just yeah empty man like there was no depth to those stories and when you read joe kelly's run on deadpool there was a lot of depth to that character yeah there was there's definitely comedy in there but there was there was an underlying uh pathos behind wade wilson that made you care about the character also and that's that's something that i feel like most writers who write deadpool uh don't seem to pick up on Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we mentioned a little bit of this earlier, too. This was uh, Abnett and Lanning's cosmic stuff, but the specific example that we were discussing earlier was Annihilation Conquest, which was the sequel to Annihilation. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, with Abnett and Lanning, I can honestly say that... I don't really remember their stuff too well, um, except to say that I know I've read a lot of their stuff, or not even a lot, but I've read enough of their stuff, and uh, for the most part, it's left me uh, without... It's left, like, zero impression on me. Uh, The one thing that I can remember that they wrote together that was 
was it it might have been the last thing that I read that the two of them worked on, which oddly enough was an older comic that they had both worked on uh earlier on in their careers, which was The Punisher. And <laughs> I just remember walking away thinking, Man, that was really dumb. That was just terrible. <laughs> yeah. So Granted, the Punisher isn't any of their cosmic stuff, but like that that impression was enough for me to 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 sour me on them, <laughs> maybe even permanently. <laughs> no, maybe's about it. Permanently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they ain't gonna get any second chances from you. I like the most majestic, but that's a DC thing. Yeah, I remember Mr. Majestic. That had some pretty early Carl Kershaw art from what I remember. I, I think I enjoyed it at the time. I I don't know if I would still like it if I reread it. The the other cosmic stuff that they did for Marvel though, like I remember they, they wrote Nova. Uh did they do yeah, they did Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, it it was just pretty bland to me. Like, I, I can't say, like, I, yeah. I like the concept of Nova and obviously uh, the work that they did in the cosmic corner of Marvel had an impact because it influenced uh, the MCU, like the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. But as far as me actually appreciating their comics, yeah, I, I can't say that anything about their craft uh, stood out so it's hard for me to say that I ever seriously considered them for a Marvel top 250. Yeah. Um, the, the one other, uh, the one other cosmic thing that I can remember, and this is a DC cosmic, uh, book that they did was Legion lost, I think. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that was them. And I remember when I was reading Wizard uh, as a kid, I remember seeing, you know, all the hype about that and thinking that that was something I wanted to check out. But, well, after having, after realizing that those were the same guys that uh, wrote all the other stuff that I read from them, uh, uh, yeah, I have like zero interest in checking that out now. <laughs> yeah, I actually borrowed Legion Lost from the library once and it wasn't very good either. I, I think I actually got bored of it and I, I quit reading after like maybe five or six issues in. So yeah. I, yeah I, didn't, I didn't even have the interest to finish it. Yeah. Yep. Yep, yep. Uh, we've got X-Men by Jim Lee, uh, but that was, we pretty much discussed that in our Chris we Claremont. About Claremont. Yeah. I mean, yeah, X-Men number so. one is the greatest selling comic of all time. So if this were a list based on sales, then I guess it'd be number one. Yeah. But we got more integrity than that. We, <laughs> You don't look at popularity of the masses. More intelligence, more integrity, <laughs> more intensity. We have the three eyes. We even have identity. <laughs> that too. We know who we are. 
another comic that makes uh, a lot of lists would be Miss Marvel by G. Willow Wilson. G. Willow Will. Mm-hmm. So this is um, a, a more recent comic. The one starring yeah. Kamala Khan, who's become one of Marvel's more uh, notable characters, more pop- one of their most popular new characters that they've created in the past decade. I believe she's getting her own uh, Marvel TV show or maybe even movie. Yep, yep. TV show. Mm-hmm. Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... I don't know. I think it got it was a comic that got a lot of attention because of uh the fact that Kamala Khan was bringing in this new perspective to comics, uh you know, as a you know, Muslim superhero and uh stuff like that, but quite honestly, G Willow Wilson's writing is we talk about like people being ham-fisted a lot and you know i think it's pretty clear that that's one of our like one of those writing quirks that we just hate here and between the gutters so Mm -hmm. for all you gutter trashers out there (laughs) uh uh, you know just just know that we we do not like ham-fisted writing we 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 prefer the art of subtlety mm-hmm. and uh and g willow wilson she ain't that she just ain't subtle she uh puts it all out there and i won't say she's as bad as claremont but she doesn't use a, as many words i'll say that yeah but that doesn't mean that it's good you know it just means it's less bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's i just remember reading the first few volumes of Ms. Marvel and it, yeah, the, the ham-fisted element was like, it, it was pretty hard to ignore. It was so, so much of her writing style involves uh, just repeatedly reminding the reader that Kamala is different, you know, like they're, yeah. she, I, she would have uh, like scenes where she would, uh, either say to the reader or I mean, it could have been like narrative captions or something, but stuff like sometimes I wish I had blonde hair. I, I, f- I always feel like I'm an outsider. And like every issue is just reminding you like that was going in her mind. Yeah. And it it honestly kind of made me question like what G. Willow Wilson was thinking because as I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to say that I speak for every ethnic minority in America, but it's not like I go, even in high school when, or whenever I was at my most insecure, I never went around thinking, man, I wish I had blonde hair or what's it like to, to be uh, white or whatever, you know, like, yeah, those, aren't, those weren't really things that uh, I guess the way that G. Willow Wilson tried to portray the character never really rang true to me as a, how a real person would think. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm not saying that, again, uh, like you, I'm not going to say I speak for all minorities or whatever, but, like, I don't, I guess I don't walk around thinking about it 
all the time. Like I, and I certainly don't feel like I need to constantly mention it to the people around me because I'd be insufferable. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, and if it's not that, it's um, you know just. It's almost like this constant reminding of people, uh, reminding people that, see, look how Muslim I am. Look at all this yeah. Muslim stuff that I do. And it's like, yeah. no, just, how about you just be a normal person, right? Yeah, exactly. Like if, again, if I hung out with someone and they were just constantly in my face about their, their stuff, like, I'd just be like, dude, I don't really care that much. Just do whatever you're going to do and, like, talk like a normal person i don't i don't need this yeah you know because if they're if they're your friends or people in your in your life then they already know that element of of your life and you don't got to keep uh just hammering it into them and exactly was the kind of writer is the kind of writer who has that need to constantly hammer reminders about what makes her character distinct and yeah, it's just kind of unnecessary, makes it a slog to read. Yeah, and you know what? I've had Muslim friends, and I don't, I, I, I don't think we've ever talked about like any of their personal stuff like that, or, or you know, like I've never. Well, that might be just more telling of how much of a crappy friend I am. But. <laughs> But I mean, it's, you know, we just talk about like the things that we talk about, but you know, and if something should come up where I'm like, oh, what's the, what's that about? Then, okay, we'll talk about it. But for the most part, like, you know, it either comes up or it doesn't, you know, like I, I've, I've never had someone try to tease me with their, um, with their personal lives or whatever like that, because that's bizarre, you know? I mean, that's G. Willow Wilson for you. I, apparently, she thinks that's normal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? Like, I mean, I, I will say, in Ms. Marvel's favor, the the comic, for a recent comic, it's actually left a pretty decent impact, you know? Like, it's it's something that got a lot of people talking, and the character is pretty popular. She's showing up yeah. in shows and cartoons and... Like Shana said, yeah. uh, movie pretty or TV show pretty soon. Yeah, I don't have any like issues with the character. I'm I'm fine with her. It's I just I'm just not a huge fan of G Willow Wilson as a writer. Yeah. Yep. And the final comic on our list is Maximum Carnage. <laughs> uh, this is kind of the quintessential uh, 90s decadence, you know? Yeah. Like, if there are a few titles that that encapsulate that era of comics, and this is one of them where you can just kind of point to it and be like, this is what was... This was everything that was wrong with that era of comics, and sensible people would look at that and they'd be like, "Oh, I see, I get it." But unfortunately, the fandom is not filled with sensible people. Yeah, <laughs> it's something that bad, I think it still has a a lot of uh, fanboys that still 
seem to enjoy it. Yeah, I don't get it. I I really don't understand. Like we've had this conversation before, where uh, I think amongst comics fans, it's pretty universally accepted that the '90s was a bad period of comics. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when you talk to you know these fans that like this stuff, there's like a weird disconnect there, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a there's an acknowledgement that the period that era was bad. But at the same time, there's no, there's no acknowledgement that that comic that they seem to hold in such high regard was the reason that it was bad. Like I remember, we were you sent me that um, this other podcast, uh, the San Francisco Comic Company, I think, or whatever. Oh man, you're and... gonna name check them, <laughs> calling them out. <laughs> whatever, man. Whatever. <laughs> You, you mentioned them, and uh, I was watching some of their videos, and the guy was like, he was trying to stick up for the 90s, and he was like, there are some hidden gems in there. And I forget if, I want to say that Maximum Carnage was was the hidden gem, or it, it might have been that, or Age of Apocalypse. I think it was yeah. Age of Apocalypse. And, or Onslaught. Or Onslaught, yeah. And he was like, that's a hidden gem. And it's like, is it? Um, I, I, one, I don't think it's hidden at all. <laughs> Secondly, two, it ain't a gem. It's not a gem. It's a it's a fully exposed turd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it, there's no way that something like that could be remotely considered for our list, but it's just yeah, strange to me how there are people that seem to hold it as a gem. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't I really can't explain me. that. It's it is <laughs> confounding, that's what it is. Yeah. And you know, just to add to this list, but onslaught, there we go. There's another one yeah. uh that I'm pretty sure some people would have thought was would have been deserving to have made this list <laughs> of top twenty five Marvels, but nah. No. Maybe no if way. you were making a list of the worst nineties crossovers. <laughs> or a list of Marvel comics that made me want to gouge out my eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we have made it to the end of our journey. Those, this is our top 25 addendums. Well, not top 25, but the addendum to our top 25 Marvel comics of all time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You guys have any final thoughts? Uh, I, I'm curious if uh, anyone out there listening has any other comics that they were they're wondering uh, about. So if anyone uh, listening has any feedback, feel free to hit us up on uh, social media or email us at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com. Converse with us. We uh, we seek affirmation. Yeah, <laughs> we don't we don't need validation because we we feel perfectly validated the way we are. But we do appreciate affirmation. <laughs> uh.
All right. This is Between right. the Gutters signing off. Thanks for listening, all you in-betweeners. <laughs> all right, gutter trash. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>